Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the Ram Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Angel. And we're calling this episode Snake on a Plane because, to be rather straightforward, this episode involves snakes and airplanes. Uh, that's because we have full impressions of Snake Pass coming up. And we also have some gaming tales from Japan where I just spent the last two weeks. Um, it's why this episode's a couple of days late. And it's why, if I suddenly become incoherent, it's why that happens. Because you can blame the jet lag that I'm currently going through and it isn't not enjoyable and but, thus now all of random nintendo has made it to japan yes that is true because you went last august when did i go was it last august was it this past year 2016 it, yeah it was right after comic-con immediately after so august or july or something so it was like, like july that. to august I think. right and then i've now gone now so random nintendo is officially international and <laughs> but yeah we did different things like you stayed in tokyo i went to kyoto i went to osaka so you give impressions of what gaming life was like for you over there so in this episode i'll talk a bit about you know, what it's like to visit Nintendo's headquarters in Kyoto. Some impressions on some bizarre, unusual, unique Japan-only Nintendo games you may or may not know even exist. Uh, things like that. So that's on the late, latter part of the show. Before all that, though, Nintendo decided my time away was also the prime time to put out a Nintendo Direct. So we oh, actually have a pretty the big The week episode. he was going to come back, I'm like, really? They couldn't wait another week? They couldn't week? wait a week. So yeah, we also have a breakdown of all that big news. Plus thoughts on the sun discontinuation of the NES Classic Edition and Switch's strong first month sales. So yeah, there's timestamps at roundtown.com for this episode. Use those if you want to jump around. Otherwise, let's just kick it off with the Nintendo Direct, I guess. I mean, it was it was a pretty it's pretty hefty in quantity. Not necessarily a lot of big surprises, but there was a fair amount of content, and it also introduced a brand new format for directs for the Switch era, I guess. And I don't know, it feels less. That's personal in a way, I guess. Like it definitely feels as personal. I would have preferred if they actually kept all the all the rows as question marks until sure. they were revealed. I do. Like, I mean, if they're going to go that route, I do kind of like like the the format flows better in a way. It almost has like an ESPN vibe. Yeah, ESPN I, I, does I did that. like that. It just went like bam, bam. Yeah. It just kept going instead of dragging on. I mean, I do like when they. I can appreciate when they go into these like all developer anecdotes or like they're yeah. just talking about their. Their personal lives and everything. <laughs> how that Talking is, about their marriage trouble of late. And, and how that is for a specific level in Yoshi's Woolly World but, but, or whatever. But, see. <laughs> but sometimes I just want to be like, all right, this game exists. Cool. Can we move on? Yeah, and it's good for that. But I do miss the fact that, like, I do miss the whole, like, daisy chaining of Nintendo people. I like getting to know the Nintendo folk. And it feels like they're kind of being pushed into the background again with this new format. I mean, it's not a huge deal. Because they have other avenues that they can introduce Nintendo people to us. Like the Treehouse now is a great Tumblr, as of a couple of weeks ago, where they're doing behind-the-scenes, like, deep dives well, I mean, into Do you think process, they're saving all that for E3? Maybe. Maybe they just know. wanted to, like, get all the no, side No, because they, they're definitely it. implying this is the new format going forward. Oh, in terms of the content, for sure. They're getting stuff out of the way. But in terms of the presentation style, I think I think they're pushing some familiar faces back into the background a bit which is which is weird but it's, mean, it's more corporate now is really what it is it feels it's like an anonymous voice talking to you instead of like look it's bill trennan and reggie and that guy who made yoshi's Boy world who apparently has marriage problems as we just learned <laughs> and whatever else like I, mean, never, well, I don't know he just now there's a guy that made yoshi's world that has marriage problems i'm sorry guy that made yoshi's world the fabric of his existence is exactly. falling apart exactly exactly it's fraying at the seams uh but anyway yes it's a little more corporate but nonetheless um (laughs) there was news of plenty so we might as well just get into the news i feel like the first 10 minutes were dedicated entirely to the 3ds and um included some games you already knew about and a few new ones from north america you know we got things like nintendo confirming fire emblem uh 
Echoes. He's got both paid and free DLC, just like every other modern Fire Emblem. We now know Ever Oasis, uh, Ever Oasis is out June 23rd. But along with those things, there's also some news that definitely, to your point about E3, to me at least, felt like they were trying to get a lot of E3 news out of the way before, or 3DS news out of the way before E3. Like, it really felt like, I know we're two months out, and I know there's a ways to go, but it really felt like the fact that they have so many first and third party games that were talked about that are coming out after E3, discussed in a direct before E3, for the lesser of the two systems in terms of, like, current buzz and word of mouth and everything, it definitely felt like they are just trying to move things out of the way so Switch can have a massive E3. So I fully expect Switch to have a massive E3. But, but I mean, we'll see. I, the, 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 the 3DS fire news fire sale, if you will, uh, started at the top of the show with a first look at, or a first new look at Pikmin for 3DS in just about nine months. I think it was revealed like last September. We've heard nothing really? since. They showed nothing since. And then they revealed that the game's now called Hey Pikmin. Which, personally, I think is a great name. You gave me the impression you don't. I just wasn't a fan of it. I don't know. I, it it's felt boring. Goof, it's kind of goofy, but... I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really tell you anything about the game whatsoever. It's like they just stuck a word in front of it. But at least it's better <laughs> than, like, Good Day Pikmin or, or something. <laughs> I don't know. Cheerio <laughs> by Pikmin Pals. Now Actually, you know what? Good now, Day now, Pikmin now, I would play. Yeah, now I'm kind of wishing they had a kind of a terrible... Like Good Day Pikmin? Yeah. Oh, man. That actually would have been good. But either way... <laughs> The whole game, like, it's so... So what we saw is kind of more of the same, but it definitely has this weird... I feel like it's kind of being pulled in two directions. It feels kind of like a rinse and repeat of Pikmin in a lot of ways. Like, Olimar's ship has crash land again. You have to get parts again in order to get him off the planet. But then gameplay-wise, it's like they just plop Pikmin on top of a side-scroller. Yeah, it literally looks like the version of Pikmin they would have made if they were to make it for iPhone or Apple or tablets or something like that. It's yeah. just, I mean, nothing inherently wrong with that it just looks way too simplified for my taste it just looks boring it honestly know. looks like... like i mean i don't know it could be fun but i don't know I, I think ever since i saw that they turned into a side scroller i was always kind of just against that change in a way just because i mean because it's pikmin i got used to having that game as a i don't know three third two third perspective right. strategy game right that yeah and this one just feels way too simplified i mean technically they're trying like... to make it the same you're still throwing pikmin to solve puzzles and find objects just <laughs> flattened out a bit yeah but honestly what reminds me of most the title kind of fits it now it's like oh hey it's pikmin instead no, but of it's hey with an exclamation mark it's not <laughs> oh hey it's hey pikmin did you notice they took off the flower logo on the pikmin font pikmin always used to be written in flowers now it's written in just cold dark cold hard metal that. it's as if they they sucked out the personality i saw that instead of putting numbers of how many pikmin you need now you have to fill in little circles yeah i which saw that too. seems kind of counterintuitive it kind of does but yeah it, it's fine because the more i see of this the more it reminds me of yoshi's new island and yoshi's island ds which is also if the rumors are true that Arzus is making it formerly r it would make sense that it resembles those games because that's you know they made those two yeah. but it definitely like it definitely feels like that. You're always on the bomb screen. The screen, the level span two screens. You're always on the bomb screen. You're using the the, the differentiator. The differentiator in this one, though, is you're using the touch screen to throw your Pikmin. The Yoshi games are pretty much all button based, with the exception of like occasionally being like, oh, touch this item or platform to go over there. But this one, like, you're gonna be doing a lot of Pikmin touching. Um, that's not as appropriate. But um, yeah, so that's like the the hook this time. Compare if you compare it to RZS other games, but it still is not really Pikmin. It's a side scroll with a Pikmin. You no, know, I'm trying skin. to figure out like. I guess. Uh, like, I feel like I shouldn't have any issues with this game in general. I really just have to think of it. I think it's because... No, it is. It's literally because it's a Pikmin game that I guess it yeah. bothers me. Yeah. But, I mean, this game is 
pretty similar to Kirby's Math Attack. Like, yeah, yeah you have a Math Pikmin, you're kind of just touching around, you're throwing things, and I love that game. But yeah, I, mean, I think it's just this is but, I mean, Kirby has, personality. Yeah, but Kirby has been established as an like, experimental franchise. So like they could do whatever they want with Kirby and it always feels cool and new. But Pikmin is the but first Pikmin, time. But Pikmin, yeah. It's just like, yeah, it just feels like you're taking the same type of gameplay but dumbing it down for it's lack of fun. a better term. It's funny because I too am like, I'm torn on Pikmin. Like I have no reason not to like this game. Yeah, I like I mean, exactly. Pikmin. Like it could be fun. Like I obviously, I've, I've obviously enjoyed this type of gameplay. But yeah. with Pikmin, it just like, yeah. irked and, me. Yeah, and not only that, but like I don't mind RZS. A lot of people online hate them. Like I had some mixed feelings about Yoshi's New Island, but I didn't hate it. So based on just that, I should be okay at least with Hey Pikmin. But I just had this weird feeling. It's Gotta feel too much like a standard platform with yeah, Pikmin but... thrown in. No, no pun intended. <laughs> but no, but seriously, like that's all it's gonna be probably. Yeah, so. and then go to like same thing with um, like I played Yoshi's New Island and like the game isn't bad. It's just so much like Yoshi's Island. It's just so straightforward. Yeah, that. Yeah, well, just, at least this one yeah. has touching Pikmin in it, and and like because you're, you know, interestingly, because you're on the touchscreen for the whole game, there's no 3D effect whatsoever in this yeah, one. Yeah, that. but uh, I will say. We've seen wishy washy on the game, but the amiibo for it looks great. Mm-hmm. I love that amiibo. I already have it pre ordered. But like, uh, I, I, I really liked it up until I thought there was no purple and white Pikmin. So I'm like, well, why? There isn't. I thought they're all oh. on there. They they pretty much got the boot for the flying and rock Pikmin. Oh, you're right. You're right. But Reggie's a big purple Pikmin. What's he supposed to do? I don't know. Maybe it's foreshadowing that he's going to get fired. Oh, I hope. He's going to get replaced by um, Nintendo's flying high. I doubt they're going to fire him now. By the Rock. Well, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Star of the number one opening movie of all time, Fate of the Furious. Yes, it now has the all-time record, half a billion in a weekend. Uh, these are things I can always say when we record the podcast late because normally it's in tandem with the episode, with the weekend box office. Anyway, you know, he dressed up as Pikachu for his son recently. So daughter. he could – daughter. So he could, in fact, become the CEO of Nintendo. Mm. <laughs> He's already going down that path. Or Pokemon Company, either one. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Amiibo is kind of cool, I think. Yeah, Regardless no, of yeah those... it does agree, and I, I would have liked it to have all the Pikmin. Even if it doesn't, you have to give but... credit for sneaking in the Pikmin leaning, the red Pikmin leaning on his arm. They have managed to put that exact Pikmin in that exact pose in every Pikmin game since the first one. He's in the box, he's in the promotion artwork, he's on the Amiibo. Like, that's a nice little nod. And also, um, we have no idea what it really does in the game. Apparently, all it says in the direct is call in additional Pikmin, but they're implying there's more to it than that, so we'll, yeah. we'll see. I'm holding off on pre-ordering it just because... The game or the Pikmin? No, the Pikmin. Oh. I mean... Wait, the, yeah, the, yeah, the Amiibo. The amiibo. <laughs> I already got the Amiibo. Yeah. Unlock. I'm definitely... Um, pre-ordering unless it's Smash, Yeah, unless it's Smash Brothers, I'm just gonna hold off on them. Mm. I, I'm being picky and choosy, but yeah. Um, I, uh, like, I'm not even getting into this. Splatoon one, I don't think you are either, right? I'm getting the squid, but we'll, we'll get to Splatoon. I honestly thought, later. like... The squid's pretty cool. It, is, this, is the squid a new pose? Yes. Yes, it's a totally different pose. It looks so similar. Like I th- Well, I mean, how many different ways can a squid shoot ink out of its bottom and be put on an amiibo? Not many. I don't know, just not make it jumping? I don't know. They could get more creative. Mm-hmm. Have it going back down into the ink, or have it coming out halfway through the amiibo? I mean, the stand? I don't know. It, I mean, when I first saw it, I thought it was just a repaint. Oh, no, no, no. It's a new design. It's more direct. The other one was more curved, or maybe this one's more curved and the other one's more direct. I don't remember. Either way, we'll, we'll get that. we'll get to Splatoon. There's still so much 3DS to, t- to talk about. For example, there's not one, not two, but three separate Kirby games all coming to 3DS this year. It's in celebration of Kirby's 25th anniversary, and the first one's already out on the eShop. So we're not going to talk about it much, but it's Team Kirby Clash Deluxe. Which as is, the name which implies, pretty much played already. Yes, as the name right. implies, it's an expanded version of Planet Robobot's Team Kirby Clash. Uh, you control four different classes of Kirby. It's free to play now. 
and you have a stamina meter and you use in-game currency called gem apples to fill up that meter or buy more items and whatnot. Well, we haven't had a chance to play it. We'll talk about it next episode. But the one I want to talk about now is the second game they announced that isn't out yet, which is uh, Kirby's Blowout Blast. And to be upfront, this too is also an expanded version of a Planet Robobot side game. In this case, it was Kirby's 3D Rumble. But that doesn't make it any less cool in my book. Like, I think this thing looks awesome. Essentially, it takes like an isometric camera angle and the boss inhale or the enemy inhaling premise of 3D Rumble, and then it just flushes it down to larger stages. So what you do is you run around like a 3D grid, and you're sucking up enemies, spinning them back out as bullets. You don't actually get powers from them, and you use these bullets to defeat under, other enemies and fight bosses like a giant DDD. And it's all sort of a score-based like challenge mode, arcade mode situation where the more enemies you inhale, the more points you get. The more enemies you hit without missing, the more points you get. And you can rack up combos and that sort of thing. And at the end of each stage, you get either a bronze, silver, or gold trophy, and you want to obviously do your best, and you can unlock harder stages um, especially like EX stages that make it you know even more difficult to do score attack. So that alone seems fun. Now on top of that, the presentation reminds me of the never-released GameCube Kirby Tilt and Tumble, which I really was excited for when I was like 10 and it was first announced, or 11, or whatever I was. So that never came out, and this looks kind of like it. So even though the gameplay is totally different, that alone got me interested in this, and the score attack gameplay just kind of backed that up. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally into this. It seems like a perfect little eShop self-contained game. Yes. Yes. I mean, well, do, do do you have? Are you do you care about either of these Kirby's? Or are you just over it because they're such like obviously filler games? No, I um, Blowout Blast looks, looks fun. Um, Kirby's Clash Ultra Freeware version looks <laughs> free to start. <laughs> free, free to start. Um, I mean, we'll definitely skip on that. I mean, I already played the, I guess, the mini game for the first one, and it's still just right more right. But yeah, I'm definitely good with just Blowout Blast. What, what's interesting is on top of these two, Nintendo's also planning to release a third Kirby game, which they're only describing as, quote, a multiplayer action game in the Kirby series. Sometime, <laughs> and it's coming out sometime this holiday. So here, there, I feel like I have a couple of interesting takeaways. If you put all three of these together, we have no idea what that third game is, by the way. But if you put them all together, there's a few things to note. First, did anyone else notice that for Kirby's 25th anniversary, there's not a single normal Kirby game at all? At least not yet. Like, I guess in theory, the mystery Kirby multiplayer game could be standard Kirby, but now with co-op. But as of now, all well, the Kirby celebration... Kirby with co-op. Kirby's Return what? to Dreamland had co-op. That's true. So in theory, it could be like that. But as of now, until we know what that third game is, the entirety of Nintendo's Kirby celebration is spinoffs. Which, in a way, I guess makes sense, because to your point you made a couple minutes ago, the Kirby franchise has evolved into a franchise where they just do whatever they want, and then as long as they put the pink puffball in, it counts as a Kirby game. And the funny thing is that the experimental games are usually, usually are usually way more yeah. interesting because I remember going back to returning to Return to Dreamland um, when that game was first announced on the Wii. I remember looking and going like, "Wow, this looks kind of boring." Looks is it dull. Kind of bland? Yeah, yeah. And, and then I played it, and I'm like, "Yeah, I just felt so by the books like Kirby." And like, where's more canvas cursor? And then they so apparently, them. Planet Robobot was actually a really solid traditional Kirby because they added that robot thing. Yeah, like they shook it up enough that yeah. I made it. Like even um Kirby's um what was that one called um Ultra 3D and Hailing Land, Triple Deluxe, Triple Deluxe. How did I know? How did I get that from Ultra <laughs> Inhaling 3D Land? Because that was the power you got. That was the gimmick. Yeah, I guess so. Like, that one seemed like a step in the right direction. Also, yeah. also just has to be on a handheld. I feel like those kind of Kirby games just thrive handheld. on handhelds. Yeah, but. yeah. there's some franchises that just do better on handheld, which is going to be interesting when the, with the Switch now in that, like... It's both. It's both. 
<laughs> so it's gonna do mediocre. Like, <laughs> no, I meant like, I meant like, if you look at like Puyo Puyo Tetris, which we talk about later, normally that'd be a handheld game, but suddenly it's also a console game. So yeah. interesting. But but with Kirby, there's one other point I wanted to make. Not only are they all spinoffs, but also I don't know if these two games even count as new games because they're basically what we played before, just flushed out. Like they're enhanced versions of what we've already seen, which. I love harping on this point. I bring it up almost every episode, but Nintendo just keeps proving it for me. It again points out that the 3DS is now Nintendo's budget system. And that means that everything we're getting from here on out is, in fact, either developed on budget or by an outsider so Nintendo can put its resources on Switch. I always make this point, but if you look at the Direct, this will probably be the last time I make this point because I don't think there's many more 3DS games to announce. But if you look at this Direct alone, every single game for the 3DS fits this bill. You've got two Kirby games that are reusing assets. Like, straight up, they're just expanding existing games. you got a third Kirby game that guarantees using the Planet Robobot engine, even though we don't know what it looks like. Uh, you got Ever Oasis, which is highlighted as a new experience, but being made by Grezzo, not Nintendo. You obviously have uh, Hey Pikmin, which we were talking about before. It's probably being made by Arzest. Fire Emblem Echoes is built on the existing Fire Emblem engine. Uh, the announcement from this very direct of Yokai Watch 2 uh, Psychic Specters which is basically like the third version of a Pokemon game, but for Yokai Watch, is again just taking the game that already exists, expanding it with new Yokai, a new co-op feature, expanded feature, it's already there in some form previously, and a new area, and then they call it a new game. So there's another game that's just kind of reusing things. You've got, even in Europe specifically, they just announced Brain Age Concentration Training is coming out in Europe this year. What? As a friendly reminder, that came out. That game came out in 2012 in the rest of the world. And only now is it coming out in Europe. Wow. They're filling the lineup. They're taking things that are easy to release I'm... and releasing them to make the budget system still have new games. While I was wondering why I saw um, Dr. K. K-, 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 K- man. Dr. K. Dr. K. The brain agent. Here I'm going to tell him, I'm like, huh. Yeah. Why is he Devilish training is what's being called in Europe. But yeah, they're they're finally bringing it over. But my point is, like, every single thing in this direct, whether it was here or in Europe or even in Japan, all the games they showed from Nintendo fit this bill of, like, oh, it's for the budget system. Oh, there are these outsiders, or oh, there's these cheaper to make games. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If the games are fun and the games are good, so be it. But it is the one evident trend I noticed across the directs across the world that I thought was kind of interesting especially since i've been predicting this for months so i like to always toot my own horn i'm right so i did uh with that said um there's one other game that's true of that i didn't mention which is metopia so metopia was the final big first party game nintendo showed in the direct and it's been out in japan since last year and now nintendo's positioning positioning it here in the u.s as like a major fall release so again they're taking an existing thing and making it a four put Bring it to America without putting too much money into it. Like, it's just, they're just pouring it over here. So, it does look kind of cool. Like, Ad's Core is a very traditional JRPG, but instead of just assigning roles to your me as you would regular characters, you also have to deal with their personalities. So, it's like a JRPG crossed with Tomodachi life, which is kind of cool. Like, the me's actually control themselves in battle. You don't deal with them. So, you're subject to their whims, their decisions based on their personalities and their previous interactions with one another. So if you have a me that has like an agreeable personality, I guess, and that's great, they'll fight for you. But if not, you might see them fight each other instead of the enemy and have to kind of deal with that consequence, which is kind of cool. It's a new spin on it. And it does give you a chance to like, the game's not like totally unfair. It gives you a chance to um, improve the relationships between your me's. There's segments where you can like go, there's like an in segment, which is basically Tomodachi Life, where you have the me's visit each other and then you can build up their relationships. They become friendly and then that boosts their stats as well, et cetera, et cetera. 
but it's basically Tomodachi Life as a JRPG, and that that's kind of cool. I mean, and it has the humor of Tomodachi Life too. Like you have regular classes for your Mii's, or you have things like being a cat or a tank, and your Mii is literally turned into a tank that you take into battle. So, you know, it's that, it's that sort of thing. So it it seems it seems a little different. It seems fun. I really like Tomodachi Life. I know some people looking back on it had problems with it being more you more watch it than you play it. Because you just sort of set the ball in motion and you let things unfold and what happens happens, which is true of Metopia as well, it seems. But Metopia seems to give you a little more control because you pick the personalities up front, you pick the class up front, you can influence the relationships based on how you have the characters interact with one another, and then you let it unfold in battle and whatnot. And you do control the world map and you decide where to go. It's just like in battle that it becomes in the hands of the Mies. So I'm optimistic that this might be fun. It'll certainly be as funny as Tadachi Life, judging on what we've seen so far but I, mean, I don't remember did you even get Tomodachi Life? I played the movement demo oh that's right and that was enough for you? yeah I mean I didn't deflect the concept but I think it came out at a time where there was definitely a game that was too engrossed on the 3DS list hmm. maybe Smash Brothers? I don't know nah it predates Smash I think and probably something else maybe Pro- Pokemon it must have been something know. else but and, and I mean I guess if you're looking for more standard RPG fare and you don't want Metopia there is every third party 3DS game shown in the direct like all of them are RPGs because uh, the thing about Tomodachi Life is that it's a I mean I always liked the idea of the game and I definitely wanted to play it but it definitely was a timing issue because those games require a lot of time investment to yes. get a lot out of it Yes. and since I like to beat my games I don't um, no shame here anymore I always want to wait for just a bigger gap to play it, but right, the gap never right. came. Yeah. Well, I know one game that always has a time suck for you is Monster Hunter. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Monster Hunter stories? So that was announced somewhat surprisingly as coming to the West in the Direct. Yeah, we're just waiting. Like Every time there was a Direct or something, like, oh, no Monster Hunter announcement? Aw. What's funny is, like... But, I mean, this is like a... I don't think a hybrid between Pokemon and Monster Hunter. It's yeah, so for those who don't know about it... It's way different. Do you want to fill them in or do you want me to just uh, do like the fact... I have like a summary of the fact sheet, basically. Yeah, you would me. do a way better job. Sure. So, Stories... Hi, everyone. I'm Jason. So, Stories is... uh, It's different from Monster Hunter in that you're not a hunter, you're a rider. So, what that means is instead of killing monsters, you're harnessing them and having them battle against one another for you. So it is like Pokemon, like you said. Or actually, you know, the better comparison as I was reading the fact sheet was Fossil Fighters mm. on the DS because you had to, like, uncover the monsters and then you use them in battle. And this one, you have to hatch the monsters by finding eggs and then use them in battle. Um, so it's not quite like Pokemon. You can't, like, catch the monsters out in the world. You still have to go through a whole process of getting them. But in terms of other things in the game, it is like Pokemon that you can have a team up to five you can harness your monsters um, in different ways and give them custom abilities by using this weird system that they're calling transmission ceremonies where you get certain items that you basically give to the monster in these ceremonies and then that gives them new abilities. It's kind of like leveling up, but not really. And the other difference is you actually fight alongside them. So your character is a fighter too in battle as well as the monsters. So that brings your total number of fighters up to six, just like Pokemon. But uh, yeah, so it's it's not really a Pokemonification of Monster Hunter, but it's definitely, it's definitely its own, more in its yeah. own in that direction. And the graphics look really good for a 3DS game. Like it yeah. is insane how they're definitely going for a much more, I guess, universal appeal with the yeah. graphics. Because I mean, compared to the other one, it was more, I guess, realistic for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I know this one for sure. Like they're, I mean, they just want to run on the, I guess, not the coattails, but. Um, they want to bank on the yokai and the Pokemon. Like they have a TV show, they have like mm-hmm. merchandise, they have like everything like lined up for this to be like a kids hit. But 
I don't know if it is. Okay. It apparently underperformed in Japan, yeah. which might be why it's now coming west, even though originally people weren't sure if it would. This game, definitely, you're right. It's aimed at kids. It's aimed at people who aren't into Monster Hunter. I mean, the gameplay is more welcoming to newcomers. Just, that's a matter of fact. Like, Monster Hunter is hard to get into, kind of. This is very, like, if you know RPG tropes or JRPG tropes, you are right then and there, right there, ready to go. As you said, like, the art style is super kid-friendly. It, it's definitely like Capcom's going for the new crown and hoping the Monster Hunter fans come along or the name recognition sort of brings in that base with it. Mm. Could also work but, the other way around. Get yeah. them hooked in early and then they're like, then oh, they I kind of want something more real. hardcore. That's true. And they're like, whoa, you mean you could do this with all the monsters? You can kill? <laughs> I could kill my lovely I pet. Can, I could kill name. all my pets? Oh. <laughs> but yeah, it, um, the one thing Nintendo didn't mention... Man, that might be traumatizing for the kids because like chop their tails. You see them like yeah, limp away in pain. That's actually super dark. Uh-huh. Like, Capcom, what are you doing? Corrupting the youth. But, you know, one thing Nintendo didn't mention the director, your merchandise thing reminded me. There are Monster Hunter stories amiibo in Japan. Yeah, gold and I, silver. Yes, and... there are four, I think. And I saw them when I was in Japan, and they look quite nice. Big. Like, one of them is literally the size of, like, the Zelda Guardian amiibo. Like, it's big. Yeah, And they're the... super detailed. Because that's the monster well and the writer on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really well done. It looks really good. I wonder if they're ever going to bring the amiibo over here. I mean, given how big the franchise has become now in the States, I could see Capcom being like, yeah, let's do it, Nintendo. Nintendo always has been supportive of Monster Hunter, so they'd be okay with it. But I don't know. Like, do you, it, Oh, man. Seeing how the Switch one is say, inevitable, dude. how Switch version of regular Monster is inevitable, I wonder if those will get Amiibo. But they'd probably get the stories Amiibo, I'd imagine. Oh, I'm talking like for the future. Oh, like future, in the general. Yeah. Well, I... For yeah, the game that you know. predicted what happened, but still... Monster Hunter Double Cross coming to Switch. I'm still calling it. I just got the day wrong, but just you wait. It'll be at E3 or something. Just you wait. Uh, no, but I, I, want, I really do wonder if, like, the Amiibo are coming because they kind of left that out. And, I mean, to be honest, if they do bring over the Monster Hunter Amiibo, I'm just going to be that much more upset that Box Boy's QB Amiibo, <laughs> Amiibo didn't come over here, like, a few episodes ago for regular listeners you may recall i went on that whole long rant about how nintendo should at least release qb on um store.nintendo.com in limited quantities it could just import it whatever but they're not even doing that they announced box bye bye box boy in the direct it came out the day of the direct and there is no qb to be seen anywhere when i was in japan i was like okay i'm gonna find a qb because obviously it's not happening because i was there during the direct and i did find a placeholder at a store for qb and I gave them the placeholder cardboard, and they went and looked, and they came back and said, oh, we actually don't have that. And it was the most crushing experience of did my Did you at least trip. get those QB plushies you I did. Them? So I got to make you up for something. it. Yeah, to make up for it, I got this dual keychain thing. It's a Kirby and a Q- It's a QB and a Kirby that looks like QB, like a square Kirby, uh, attached, little plushes attached together on a keychain. It's, it's not as good as the Amiibo, hmm. but I'll take it. QB and Kirby. Kirby. Kirby sounds Kirby. like something a little like a toddler would try to pronounce Kirby. Yeah, seriously. Quit Kirby. <laughs> yeah, but they better release the Amiibo is my real point. Um, but anyway, sorry, I, I got on a tangent. We were supposed to be talking about all the RPGs on 3DS. RPG Maker Fest yeah. Western yeah, that's, that's the last for one. June 2017. That's the last one worth mentioning is RPG Maker Fest. Um, so a lot of Monster stories. I, this one caught my... I personally don't know if I'm going to buy this because I'm not huge on rpgs as i like pokemon and maybe Mito- uh, Metopia and stuff like that but the concept of it is just so cool if you're an rpg fan well, basically this question how many levels did you make in mario maker 
Not very many. That's my point. <laughs> and considering that's like that's the most bare bones, but I did play a lot of can... other people's levels. I'm not creative in yeah, terms but then, of but also, hold on. But then you have to play art. Yeah, playing other people's Mario levels, you could do like in a few minutes. It's different than playing someone else's <laughs> RPG and you don't know the quality. Here's my of the 40 RPG. hour epic. Get ready. <laughs> it tells the story of my life moving from the basement to the attic in my house. It's gonna be great. But uh, yeah, it for RPG fans though, like Mario. I mean, Maker, it sounds really cool. Like I would. I'd love to play this, but yeah. now I just want it on the Switch because of the bigger screen, and yeah. it seems like to make more sense. And there, it, and but. and not, the the real cool thing about this is not so much it could build your own RPG and it gives you the tools and all that. It's the separate app you can download for free from the eShop, which hopefully if they do a Switch version, they do it for that too, called RPG Maker Player, where anyone in the world can download, or at least in America, can download this free eShop app that lets you play anyone's RPG Maker Fest creations without Ooh. buying the game. So basically they realize there's a limited player base, so they're giving you a way to easily share your RPGs with people that did not buy the game. And hopefully, in uh, NIS America's mind, that will convince people to then go buy to make their own RPGs. But who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Because, I mean, it's a huge time player and maker make mentalities are pretty different. different. Like, not everybody that likes to make games likes to Oh yeah, like look at me. I was just saying, I played the Mario Maker levels. I barely made them. Yeah. I my creativity is funneled through things like uh, the podcast, or making the banners for the podcast, or writing the blog post for the podcast, or taking photos for the podcast, or writing articles. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not making Mario levels. Is my point. But do you but, or doing interviews for the podcast. Hint, hint, everyone. If you haven't been to Roundtown.com lately, go check it out. We interviewed Sean Triplock, voice of Rivali. Teba and the Deku Tree in Breath of the Wild, and there's a very lengthy interview about, with him about that, and it's pretty cool. That's it's a good on info. the site right now. Yeah, it's one of the coolest. Especially if you're interested in becoming a voice actor. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the coolest things we've ever done, and yeah. So go check that out. That wasn't. I just managed to squeeze a plug. Yeah, in speaking there. of which, you you must have beaten that game on your plane ride. Nope. I mean, it's such a long. Well, I had to play. play. So, well, well, first of all, there's sleeping involved in both directions. Second of all, there was Wi-Fi on the plane, which is the death of me because I'm just on Twitter. And third of all, uh. The plane was actually shorter than I thought. Coming back was only eight and a half hours. Going was only eleven. They were booked for eleven and a half and nine. Wow, and you half. know it takes like less than half of that to beat Zelda. What? Okay, I haven't. I'm not gonna <laughs> speed run it. I'm gonna play it right. I did run around and kill Moblins and stuff and get closer to the next like story point. So Wait, have you gotten to the first Guardian? I have no comment on the first Guardian. <laughs> you mean the first Beast? The first Guardian's in the plateau. Oh, yeah, you're right. Divine I'm beast. off the plateau, and I'm well into non-plateau land, but I don't want to give spoilers here on the podcast. Slash, I don't want to admit where I am. So <laughs> I'm just going to move on to our next topic, which is the He hasn't gone to Kakariko Village. Speaking, you know, actually, funny thing about Kakariko Village, uh, when I talk about Japan, you'd be surprised what inspired that. That's a no. You'd be surprised what inspired <laughs> that. I found the inspiration. So that's definitely a no, then. It's actually really wow. That hey, <laughs> hey, you know what? Um, Switch first party games. Zelda's one of them, but let's talk about some of the others. We're basically done with 3DS. Surprised. I'm surprised. We're basically done with 3DS. Um, so Switch, yeah. Hey, <laughs> hi everyone. Switch. <laughs> yeah. So Nintendo didn't have any new first party games like they did for 3DS, but they did have plenty to say about other ones we already know are on the way. Uh, first off, there's ARMS. So I think the big takeaway from the Direct with ARMS is that there's actually way more depth to ARMS than we thought. And that's coming from someone who already thought there was a surprising amount of depth when I demoed it a month ago. At that time, as you may recall, I, uh, I was saying that because each character has three different weapons and individual abilities, it means there's double to account for. You have to think about the weapons and the character of your opponent. But it turns out you have to actually multiply that. Because it turns out that there are tons of weapons, which they call arms, appropriately enough, 
and they can be assigned to but any. they're not called fists. Yeah, you'd think they I mean, would the be, but, but they change. go up onto the arm a little. But yeah, they should be called fists or hands or like... But I guess fists doesn't sound like a good name for no, the game. No, no. No, but I guess they're weapons. I mean, you do call weapons arms, like... Oh, wow, arm. I didn't even pick up on that. Like, like call yeah, to, like yeah. call to arms, like yeah. I'm armed with my arm. Oh, okay, Nintendo. So, yeah. uh, if I so, could high-five you so through many, the Yeah, so I guess it does work on many layers. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. arms, there's arms. And there's arms. Arms are armed in arms which you play with your their arms. arms are armed with their arms yeah yeah anyway there's just as many layers as there are to that pun there are layers of depth in this game it turns out like i thought it was only one or two it goes way deeper because there are not only weapon the weapons and the characters are totally separate i thought it was weapon specific to characters and you pick from three turns out the weapons are anyone can use anything basically and there's a whole different t- system of types of weapons. There's fire weapons, electric weapons, ice weapons, and it just keeps building and building. That and how what those do is when you do a charge shot, they have a different effect on opponents. So not only do you have to take into consideration, you know, like the speed of your weapon or what sort of thing it does for a normal punch, but now there's these charge abilities that you also think about. Plus, each character has their own special that can be triggered. For example, Springman, who's the main mascot with what looks like Colgate for hair, he um. He has charged up attacks whenever his damage reaches a certain point. There's always charge. You don't have to charge him. There's constantly charge. Then there's this new character, Min Min, who has ramen for arms, which is amazing. And she uh, will be able to kick her opponents whenever she's jumping. And she's the only one that can do that. So you have that on top of individual existing character traits. Uh, or sorry, I think the kick is actually an individual character trait. And her special is um, she could turn her arm into a dragon. I got those mixed up. And be way more powerful with that. But my point is, there's like... Normal character traits, special yeah, character the traits, new weapons, and... different weapons. It's... That's the part that yeah. was a little confusing to me in the beginning because she could turn her arm itself into a dragon, but not necessarily use the, the dragon arm. weapon. Yeah, she could be armed with a dragon on her dragon, but basically what happens is her arms reinforce like a dragon body and is super fast and strong. Yeah, so if you're using, so you happen to be using the dragon head, it looks like a full on dragon. Otherwise, it looks like a dragon by with a punching glove on top, which is weird, and I feel bad for that dragon that's suffocating inside that glove. But yeah, it's there's the point is there's a lot more to arms than meets the eye. And the way you go about getting weapons also points to some of the other variety within the game. Uh, you earn in-game currency, which you then use to buy your arms. I assume somewhere in the game there's a joke about an arms dealer at some point. But uh, where it gets a bit unclear is actually how you go about earning that currency and spending that currency. So in the Direct, they showed a punching mini game that indicates you rack up currency there. But the accompanying press release for the Direct suggests you earn it just by fighting. And then that punching minigame is actually how you get the new arms. You have to punch the boxes as you're doing target practice. Wait, so and those boxes the bo- are the arms. You have to unlock the arms so you can then I, buy yeah, them? I think you buy, I think you use the currency to play the game. And what would back that is the fact that on when they're showing the punching minigame on the bottom, the, the overlay said punch the boxes for prizes. So that matches the press release, but does not match the voiceover, which said you earn them with currency but this yeah. sounds like you're this all sounds like a gotcha that, i mean system. uh i mean it earning with currency makes more sense unless you could get some randomly so well, that you don't so that you don't, have, random... so that you don't have to buy all of them like oh i happen yeah. to get the the toaster so i mean i don't have to buy the toaster and there's also the fact that if it's randomized do you, are there duplicates is it like full-on gotcha like fire emblem heroes or something or a caps or toy capsule machine thing in japan where like you could get the same arm five times and waste your coins like i can't imagine them doing that because i would undermine the entire like esports angle they're trying to do with this like you can't go pro if you're sitting there trying to unlock the dragon arm for two hours well, gonna stop them from doing it in smash brothers and they ruin their own chances of ever making custom moves but yeah but i mean that was never gonna be a thing oh we could dream yeah but but like so that that one's a little different but i feel like with arms you need arm 
you need to be armed with your arm to do well at arms. And the only way to be armed with your arm to do well at arms is if you are armed correctly by the arms that the game gives you, which I don't know where I'm going at this point is, they can't do randomization. That can't be the way it goes. But the press release in the video seemed to suggest it is, but the voiceover suggests yeah, it's not. Yeah, if they so, do that, they'll kill it before yeah, it it's, it's a weird. It, it's a weird situation. Like I don't understand how something so simple is suddenly so muddied, but we'll see. We'll see. There's a lot more to come before the game comes out, and this is all a lot of conjecture, so time will tell. One thing for sure, though, is that we know that ARMS includes not just one-on-one battles, but also two-on-two battles, which is kind of cool. It looks really chaotic. There's probably no strategy. It's probably like playing Smash Bros. with eight players versus one-on-one Smash or something, but it looks really fun. It does make me wonder, though, what's up with online support for ARMS? Is that a thing that's happening? They have not once mentioned online. Uh, and it comes did? out... I don't think so. I want to say they did in the first review when they, that January... Switch. In the presentation, I yeah. I don't I really don't maybe not there, so. but after that, but I mean I don't know. And not only that, but even know. if Arms does have multiplayer, it comes out before Splatoon, which is when they're launching all their premium multiplayer stuff. So is it could be like simplified multiplayer, like basically Mario Kart Eight style multiplayer, or it's, that's the thing we just don't know. I feel like Arms is such a readily made game for online play that it strikes me as weird that they haven't outright hyped up online play. It could very well be there, but you'd think they'd say it. And even more confusing is, like, I'm looking at the ARMS website right now, or the Nintendo.com page, and it still only says up to two players on there. And if you go to the ARMS website, it says up to four players. But again, no mention of online. If you search online, literally there's nothing for it except online retailers where you can buy it. So it's a little weird. I would imagine it's there, but at the same time, this is Nintendo, and they do make odd choices, so it may very well not be. Even Pokemon online. Right? I mean, we'll find out soon enough. Arms comes but out. But Mario Party 16. still doesn't. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if, if they're trying to make this a local thing, then, like, a Mario Party, like, local experience, then they might go around online. But it seems like such a missed opportunity for a fine game to not have online. But, but like I was trying to say, we'll find out June 16th. Um, that just barely makes the spring time frame that Nintendo promised. In fact, it's eight days short of summer. But, hey, they, they hit spring as they promised. And uh, along with Arms, they're actually releasing new Joy-Cons in neon yellow which looks extremely yellow in all the photos of it. They seem weird. They they're seem like, like kind of green, but kind of they're yellow. They're the arms yellow. They're the logo's yellow. That mm. shade, I think. They kind of reminded me of that, that like lime green Game Boy, but I mean, just more yellow. They're like unripened bananas. Mm. That's what I think they're like. And I think, and along with being unripened bananas, I think it officially marks the beginning of what we predicted, both of us a long time ago here on the show, custom Joy-Cons. They're starting simple enough. All they're doing is making yellow ones. But if people latch on to new Bring colors... Bring out the orange ones, and then that's, I guess, all the ones I'll get. But, but no, just you wait. Because if people latch on to new colors because of a new game, it's not all that far-fetched to follow that thread and say that down the road they're going to launch new Joy-Cons with new features to coincide with new games. They're going to wee-wheel it. They're going to wee-zapper it. They're going to make a D-pad Joy-Con for one game or a GameCube looking Joy-Con for easier Smash Bros. play or things like that. Like We know the patents are there. We talked about them back before the Switch was really properly unveiled in January, and again in January. This is the path. I won't say they're conditioning us with the yellow Joy-Cons, but they're definitely priming the pump for us being into the idea of special releases of controllers for games. And then we're doing it three months into the Switch's life, which is kind of interesting. But, like, they wasted no time at all. So, so we'll see. I, I, I think Orange is bound to happen at some point. But I, and it'll probably red, happen before. We'll, we'll probably get red and green first. Yeah, and I'm sure it'll happen before um, 
we see crazy new controller like inputs but I, both are for sure coming i feel like but anyway uh yeah that's arms so a month after arms we're getting splatoon 2 and how's that for just like moving right along and uh yeah so i guess you were right that they're similar enough it's funny the splatoon 2 amiibo literally is just Oh, like a, yeah, a continuation of the Splatoon yeah. One amiibo. Yeah, it's the exact same pose, except the squid is just he's further higher. up. He's higher and tilted. Yeah, he's just like jumping up at that angle. So if you put them next to each other, it'll look like I don't know, like a little motion of you like Nintendo's, your eyes. Nintendo dollars at work. Just scoot that amiibo up in the mold. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the next one's literally just gonna be him up even higher, and then you're just gonna get a puddle. And then if you have enough of them, it's gonna make a whole little animation like a Zoldio, it's, it's like a Zoldio stop motion animators. Yeah. I feel like. But you know what's funny is, yeah, he's basically the same pose, but I haven't pre-ordered. Of all the new Amiibo, the only one I got was... Or of all, sorry, of all the new Splatoon Amiibo, the only one I got was uh, the Squid. I didn't get either Inkling. But but before we get to the Amiibo, there is the game itself, which actually has some new stuff of note coming out. So I feel like over the past few weeks, outside of even the Direct, Nintendo's been doing a pretty good job of like, trickling out new info via their Squid Research Lab Twitter, uh, Tumblr. You know, they mentioned that you can have custom weapon loadouts in some circumstances you can for once change your inklings pants you used to be able to change as part of the whole outfit now they're independent that's super exciting right but the big reveal from the direct is by way of a wonderfully retro and cheesy video which was like so perfectly early 90s late 80s vhs uh and it's called salmon run and it's an entirely new mode it's basically the splatoon equivalent of a horde mode uh the ultimate goal is you lure in a boss salmon you kill the boss salmon, you get gold eggs, you take those gold eggs to your base, you collect enough of them, and you win. And like in a normal horde mode, you're playing co-op, and if you happen to die in the process, you can be revived by another member shooting at you, with ink in this case, and then you come back to life. And this is what I meant last episode when I said there needs to be more in Splatoon 2 to really differentiate it from the original. Global Test Fire was fun. Turf War was cool, but it was just nips and tucks. It was just new weapons. It didn't really feel like anything new or different or, dare I say, fresh. But yet, with Splatoon 2, they're actually making a new mode that introduces a whole new thing, and it has a second layer of being really welcoming to newcomers. Like, if you're first playing Splatoon, and you go into a turf war, and you're playing against really good people, you're going to lose a lot. You may not enjoy it as much, even though they try and balance things out by having Splat Rollers be more newbie-friendly and that sort of thing still. But in in Salmon Salmon Run, Run, because it's co-op, you don't have that issue whatsoever. So you get to fight alongside the good players. You get to beef up your skills alongside them and then get the hang for everything. And once you do, you can then go into Turf War and be fine. Yeah, I could definitely it's see really myself gravitating myself more towards this mode just because I've always loved Horde mode. Dude, it's so fun Horde in Call mode of in Duty. general, yeah. Like zombies in Call of yeah, Duty. Yeah, pretty so much good. like that. Yeah, like they're just so addicting and, yeah, like Left 4 Dead or anything that's... I mean, even if it's player versus player, I still love these more cooperative-centric ones. I mean... Yeah, they're more cooperative than competitive, which is just, I don't know, I just feel like they're really, really fun. Can't wait to play that. Yeah, yeah. And and this is only the start of new modes, I feel like. Like, Nintendo was already teasing in the Direct a revamped single-player mode with a whole new story with the Octolings. So, I imagine we're going to learn a lot more at E3, given the game's July release. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 cool. I'm excited for I'm really excited for Horde mode. And I actually really like, I gotta give developers credit. There's one thing that's really cool they're doing with Splatoon 2 specifically, which is some really impressive world-building. Like, the first one had pretty good world building, but this one, they're really stepping it up. I mean, in Salmon Run, or is it Salmon Rush? It's Salmon Run. Run. In Salmon Run, look at their outfits. They're so thought out. They're wearing, like, little salmon fishing outfits, but they have the beacons on their back. And those beacons on the back 
are not just the life draft when they die, they also are the perfect size to hold the golden egg to take it back to the base. Like, they thought this through so well. And then if you look at, like, the other new stages they revealed, they're really expanding on, like, what do Inklings do in their spare time? What is this culture like? They have a skate park that introduces new, like, curvy, uh, like, topsy-turvy sort of uh, things you can walk on. So it's not just flat anymore. You're actually curved. I mean, they've had the skate park before. Have they? But this they're hyping this one up like it's brand new. The Well, I mean, it was a... Uh... The humpback pump track? Yeah, I mean, this, one is, really this, one, this one's definitely way more curvy, but they've, yeah. they, they've had that one that was, it was just a skate track, but it was like an outdoor skate track. Remember, it was like the inside of a pool. It had oh, that's right. that's right. Like, they already had skate park-ish right. stuff Okay, before. fine. Here's one they didn't have. Starfish main stage, or main stay, or whatever they're calling it. Oh, a concert venue. Yeah. Because music is so big in the world's platoon. They had the uh, Cali and Marie in the first one. They have wet paint, I think it is, or wet pool or something in the second one which is like an emo band that looks like it's from the MySpace era. But now they have like a whole concert venue because where do where do Inklings listen to music? They go to a concert venue. So they made a concert venue. Like it's, it's, or they have like the mall that we play in the yeah, Global Test Fire. They have the museum. They have the museum. It's, they have the gym. It's really cool how like the first game did this a little, but I guess the skate park being an exception as that was in the first game, but it just feels well, like... Well, this one's indoor. I mean, this one looks like it's more, more BMX friendly. And... Yeah. But it's just really cool to see them really build out the world so much. Yeah. Like, the, the developers are definitely comfortable with what they've done with this platoon world. Now they're just having fun with it, which is really cool to see. Um, we also were talking about the Amiibo. I feel like we should talk about what the Amiibo do. Because they finally found a good use for this platoon Amiibo. So, the new Inkling Boy, the new Inkling Girl, and the Squid, uh, and along with giving you special in-gear item, or in-game gear, like the originals did, if I remember Not correctly. as cool a gear. The gear is not as cool, but what yeah. they do instead is cooler, which is you can basically have a secondary full loadout of outfit and weapon and everything ready to go, and you just put on the amiibo, and you take it to a friend's house, and you plop it onto their Switch, and you can play local turf war against them on their Switch with your amiibo loadout. It's like what the Wiimote used to do for Miis, where you could take your Mii to your friend's house, but Splatoon. Yeah, and... which is something that I feel a lot of these competitive games should do, especially when it comes to, like, well, yeah, like, Splatoon is, like, perfect for it. Smash Bros., I feel, is also, like, another big one that could really benefit from it. because it sort people of has it. Like, you can take your custom AI Amiibo part. Well, yeah, but you can't really do anything with them if you're playing a one-on-one That's tournament. That's true. Like, I mean, what I mean is just, like, if you scan your Amiibo, it just automatically... I mean, it could default to your favorite character because they'll switch it, but it should at least, like, carry your your controller configurations because almost everyone has like a different controller yeah. input and that always takes forever just watching everyone put in their name changing the controller input yeah, going to testing that's true. like if they could just go plot put the amiibo plot put the amiibo like oh you have a nice little way to it, it's funny because nintendo and no other this out. game has done this like other yeah, true. yeah like street fighters all those terms like you always see people in the beginning just like quickly changing their control like they've gotten so good at it that they do do it really really fast but they still have to do it yeah but it's funny because Nintendo figured this out with the Wii remote. They figured it out. Yeah. Like I was saying, like Mies did this. They figured this out in 2006, 2007. And then it's like they forgot. And then they're looking at these NFC figurines they've had for three years. And like, you know, remember that thing we figured out a decade ago? What if? Cause crazy. What if we did that again, but with the thing that we're currently selling? And yeah, here you go. And of course, they're doing it in the most Nintendo of ways, right? You have an amiibo friend, and you scan them into the game, and they pop up next you to you. take pictures with them. And the two of you can pose together, and it's all yay. Do you know but if you can use the older amiibo, or is it just these? It works with older and new. Oh, cool. Yeah, it oh, supports all amiibo. amiibo. Yep. So I think that's kind of cool. And, and Splatoon isn't the only new amiibo set on the way this summer either. So though the Splatoon amiibo come out with the game on July 21st. But on June 23rd, Nintendo's releasing three new Zelda Amiibo, all of Link, 
There's Master uh, Majora's Mask Link. There's Twilight Princess Link, and there's Skyward Sword Link. And so while they have two Twilight Princess Link. Yeah, and while they look nice enough, I can't help but wish they got a little more creative. Like, why not do Fierce Deity Link for Majora's Mask? Why not put Link on a loft wing for Skyward Sword? Why, why are these just incarnations of the generic character art from each of the three games? But in plastic. Like, they could have had the Majora's some fun Mask one, I'll give them some. Yeah, the Majora's way. Mask one, maybe. But mm. literally, all three of these poses for all three of these um, figurines are the ones on the box. Yeah. Which is a little lazy. Like, come on, Nintendo. It's a, it's a bit lazy. I mean, it's nice that they're doing it, but because of that, and because they're not 30th anniversary branded now that we're in the 31st year, I don't really have an urge to buy them. Yes, yes, I know. Breath of the Wild, you can get certain items with them, but you can also just get an NFC spoofer if you care that much. You get a little card and just load them up. All yeah, the things especially they Especially with all the trouble, already... you have to go to get those costumes. Yeah, as we were talking about last episode. I know. Or, like, or two episodes yeah, ago. like after, I think right before that episode, I had finally completed the Wind Waker one. And I'm still scanning every day. And I still haven't finished the Twilight outfit, which is really annoying because I have <laughs> everything but the middle, the tunic. Right. But yeah, it just seems like a missed, I don't know, it just seems like a missed opportunity to do more. Like, yes, you're, you will sell them, Nintendo, because there are Zelda fans. Like, my friend who I went to Japan with, he had zero interest in Amiibo. Then he found out what he can do with them in Breath of the Wild, and he was on a hunt for them the entire trip in Japan, the Zelda ones. is is kind of like how he completely flipped. But, but yeah, I don't know. It just seems like this. But they would have found all of them? No, he found none of them. Or, no, he found 8-Bit Link. Oh. They're actually hard to come by the 30th anniversary ones because they were a limited run. Yeah. yeah. On the flip side, contrary to the Zelda Amiibo... Nintendo seems to be going above and beyond with these Smash Bros. Amiibo that have been a long time coming. They finally confirmed that Corrin, Bayonetta, and Cloud are all on the way and in two different forms each. Bayonetta will come in her Bayonetta 1 and Bayonetta 2 looks. Cloud will come in his regular and Advent children clothing. Corrin will come in both genders, male and female. And all those alternate ones are being called Player 2, which sounds like the perfect way to brand future alternate amiibo for other Smash Bros. characters, should Nintendo decide to really milk them for all their work. I know, if they do make a remake or, I guess, a tournament or championship edition for the Switch, it would seem like a good time for them to go like, oh, here are all the other Koopalings now, here, now, female Robin. Yeah, can you imagine eight Koopalings? God. Uh, now, here you, you bring up a good point about the Smash Bros. Championship Edition. The thing I find most interesting about these Amiibo is not that they're finally coming out. It's not that they actually look pretty cool, but I, I don't think I'm going to buy any. It's that there's no Smash game to coincide with their release, To you know, nothing to promote. There's no Fire Emblem to tie into because... Did they even really mention Smash Bros. No, when they're talking about it? They're all. just like, oh, here are these Amiibo. No. What are they for again? Yeah, no, they had the logo in there. The new Smash Bros. Amiibo. It's like, all right, those, those games are multiple years old. You have no new Smash. You have no Fire Emblem tie-in. There's no. Yeah, there's remember, not even anything with... Yeah, uh, I remember they didn't even show like footage of them working. They're just like, oh, yeah. here they are. Like, oh, now you can scan them in and you can play as... Yeah. Or blah, it's, blah, blah. it's crazy because they can't even argue, well, there's a new Final Fantasy or a new Bayonetta we could tie into because there's not. There is literally no rhyme or reason, which makes you wonder why would they hold back for over a full year for these Amiibo to just randomly release them on July 21st in the middle of summer when nothing's going on but Splatoon. Part of me... Is that a release date? Part of me wants to believe it's because the new Smash Bros. was originally going to come out this year at some point. Be it a brand new game or the rumored enhanced port, like you were just saying, Championship Edition with like the Switch and, you know, for Switch that combines 3S and Wii U. Be it that or something new, who knows? But it seems like they were going to do that, and they were waiting, and they were waiting, and then they realized it's not coming out this year, and they're like, well, we can't sit on these Amiibo for two whole years, so I guess we'll just release them as collectibles and call it a day. Or, if you want to get real crazy, at E3, they're going to announce Smash Bros. It's going to launch the same day as Platoon 2, because that's when the Amiibo come out, which would be suicide for both games. So I don't think that's what's happening. 
But um, wow, yeah, it's just like something was definitely planned, and then it suddenly wasn't, and now they're just like release the amiibo, I mean, and that's it. Say Smash Bros. is coming out this year. When would do you think it would come out? When can it fall. come out? Fall. Wonderful. Uh, well, let's see. They I mean, have Splatoon. They, they have Splatoon in summer. They have Fire Emblem, Xenoblade, and Mario in the rest of the year. That's about it. So they could. Xenoblade Two is confirmed this year. Supposedly, we'll see if it actually happens. But they say so. Why can envision happening is we're gonna get Fire Emblem in late September. We're gonna get Mario during the holidays, like that third week of November, and we're gonna get Xenoblade the first week of December. That's my rough guess, guesstimates, so to speak. So they could easily slot in Smash in October. Or they can move Fire Emblem to August and put Smash in September. Or still October. Like, they have wiggle room. And it might even be for a game or two. There's probably going to be some new games announced at E3 coming this year. I don't know. But it is possible to do Smash. But why would they release the Amiibo now instead of with Smash a few months later? Unless there's no Smash. Which is my current theory. That there's no Smash this year. If they were planning to do a Championship Edition, it either got pushed back or it got cancelled in favor of a whole new Smash. But we're not... I, I would <laughs> Revamped but... Amiibo of the entire line in different poses. Oh, God. <laughs> Player 2 through 10. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, I don't know. It just seems weird to release these with no reason, except, hey, we said they were coming, unless... Exclusive to America, Mario open costume. Amiibo. I would buy that Amiibo. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I would totally buy that Amiibo. The pinstripe Mario? Yeah. Oh, for sure. That'd be the best Amiibo I'd have hands down but yeah so i don't know i mean they're gonna sell well as collectibles they're gonna sell like you're probably gonna buy them because you have a smash set you need to complete right yeah i mean i already pre-ordered them except exactly. female corn because that one i think i have to wait on amazon yeah and that's the other thing of note with these amiibo is uh they've marked the return of retailer exclusives which kind of sucks so yep. i feel like as any amiibo connector collector or any nintendo fan knows by now those retail exclusives are kind of the bane of amiibo's existence like they suck now perhaps <laughs> perhaps it's not as bad now like no i couldn't get them all at best buy i have nope. to get regular cloud and bayonetta 2 bayonetta at best buy and yeah so as of Amazon. right now what we know is skyward sword link and player 2 variant of corin are at gamestop and twilight princess link and player 2 variant of cloud are at amazon or no sorry, oh, sorry backwards, i got that backwards. wrong i got those reversed amazon has uh skyward sword and corin yeah. gamestop has twilight princess and cloud but we don't know what's up with the rest of them Best Buy hasn't said if they have any. Well, I pre-ordered regular Cloud and but we all know, Bayonetta 2 Bayonetta from But we don't know GameStop. if, like... So those must be what, generic, or maybe well, those were Bayonetta the... 2 ba- Yeah, maybe. But we don't know what's happening with, like... Bayonetta 1 Bayonetta. Bayonetta 1 Bayonetta, 1 Bayonetta or uh, Majora's Mask Link. So mm-hmm. we'll, fi- we'll find out in the coming days, I'm sure. Like, by the time this goes live, people may already know. But in the meantime, we no, don't. Majora's Mask Link is going to be exclusive to um, Dream Halloween. It's going to come out in October. Exclusive to the 99 cent store, <laughs> new Metro's Mask Link. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird that they're going back to this. I mean, maybe they fix their production woes. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not going to be a total nightmare. But like from Nintendo's perspective, I get why they do this. You maintain good relationships with your retail partners when you do. And that means better promotion for Nintendo products in the future, obviously. Like I'm sure Amazon's thrilled to have those exclusives, as is GameStop. But for fans, it's obviously frustrating because as you point out you can't get in one place you have to run from store to store go from website to website you have to track across multiple things especially if shortages are a thing again that just makes it that much harder so i guess we'll have to wait and see if it's really an issue or not it was an issue in the past but i'm optimistic nintendo maybe remedied it with these then again it is nintendo and they sometimes don't know what they're doing with these things or at least put on a good front that they don't know what they're doing so who knows if anyone's looking at me somehow through a microphone i'm doing the shruggy 
pose. But like, who knows? Like, I, it could go either way. But it, it's definitely not a good sign that they're going back to retail exclusives. But maybe it's you know not a big deal. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you've had no trouble pre-ordering, did you? Or was it like a mad rush like back in the day? No, I actually haven't checked to see if they sold out, but I had no issues. I didn't even know when they went up. I did randomly check them. Right. They were there. Because, yeah, I know that, like, obviously the Pikmin Amiibo didn't have this mad rush. It's been up for pre-order for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's I see you're checking right check now. Right yeah, now. you might as well check right now. I will, I will say, while you do that, that two Nintendo's credit, while the Amiibo thing may potentially be a bit of a crapshoot, uh, at least the Switch first-party game schedule is shaping up really well. Like, I gotta give Nintendo credit where it's due. You basically got a big new Switch release every six weeks, starting with Mario Kart 8 on April 28th. Then you've got ARMS on June 16th. Then you got Splatoon on July 21st. It's smart because it allows Nintendo to capitalize on a time frame that the industry typically ignores. Normally, summer is a dead period, which makes zero sense because it's a prime time for kids who aren't in school, right? Like, if you're not in school, you have time for video games. And if you have time for, and if you're home from school, your parents want you out of their hair and they're going to buy you video games. So there are two reasons for releasing games in the summer, and in both cases, companies just don't. Yep, they're all still available, including the Pikmin one. Wow, okay, so maybe the shortages are over. But back to my point about... Or no one cares anymore. Or no one cares. But back to back to my point about the schedule, like, it's really smart for Nintendo to latch on to summer, because June, companies put out games, August, companies put out games, no one really does it in July, so to do one in mid-June and have one in July and carry those through the summer is a good move on Nintendo's part. Because not only does it mean you can sell more, but due to lack of competition with other games, you also get to dominate the converse, the gaming conversation on social media. You have the stronger word of mouth just by virtue of the fact that there is no one, no other game for people to talk about at the time. They're going to be talking about ARMS. They're going to be talking about Splatoon 2. Because by late July, let's be honest, no one's talking about the next Uncharted or whatever because it's been a month or it will be a month. Like It's that weird gap in between. So it's really smart on that on their part. Um that said, some people may feel that uh, it's not enough time in between games, and I kind of get that. I mean, Nintendo's trying. Like, Mario Kart, that's, from Mario Kart to ARMS is probably the longest gap, and they're trying to fill that with, like, they're going to do official tournaments in Mario Kart and that sort of thing, but it is a game we've already played, so I can see why people might be like, well, that's too much time, I just want my ARMS. But if you really do feel that the releases are too infrequent, there are a number of third-party games shown off in the Direct that kind of fill that gap nicely. And that lets us pivot quite nicely to top third-party games. And the first one is actually out before Mario Kart 8 even arrives, and that's Puyo Puyo Tetris, and that comes out April 25th. And I'm going to be honest, we've known about this game for a while. It was announced in January. It was never really on my radar whatsoever. It's been out in Japan also. Yeah, it's been out in Japan. Or it's coming out in Japan. The demo's been out for a while. Uh, Or no, it just came out in Japan this past week. But but did you, you I'm guessing, not very much interest in it either, right? No, I actually have tremendous interest since it was first announced. Oh, really? Because I had zero, and then I played the demo that just came out alongside the Direct, and now it is definitely on my radar. Yeah, this game has been an instant buy since... Really? I have no idea. No, yeah, I mean, I love competitive Tetris. I mean... What about Puyo Puyo? Um, I could care less about it, but... Wow. But this has... Wow. <laughs> but since half of this game is Tetris, and you can literally play Tetris versus Puyo Puyo... I think I can just play Tetris. Well, half the game and, plays Tetris. Well, I mean, the I styling guess, is all Puyo Puyo. Well, I mean, I guess it depends what game mode you play that will force you to play Puyo Puyo. Yeah. But if anything, I can see it as an opportunity to learn how to play Puyo Puyo properly. And Puyo Puyo is fun. Yeah, I just never got into it, so I never really learned how to actually strategize. I just dropped things and things happened yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So, so the big difference between Tetris and Puyo Puyo is that Tetris, obviously you're clearing lines, and Puyo Puyo is all about globs chains. and chains. You chain together any shape really of up of four or more i think maybe three or more of these little balls of pollo whatever pollo is 
they have eyes. I assume they're alive. I really don't know. Um, but you chain them together. And what's interesting about this, at least in the demo, is... So in the final game, there's like a fusion mode where you're literally doing both at once. And there's always different modes. But in the demo, they just have standard. And then they have one where you're like flipping between the two. So you're doing a whole Tetris game. And that just randomly flips you over and has you do a whole Poyo yeah, Poyo game. And then it goes back. I like that one. If, if For the one that combine them, I like definitely like that one the most. But well, uh, there's only been two you've played so far. No, I mean the concept. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I don't know, yeah, I mean, I just love playing multiplayer Tetris, especially with a lot of people, so. Yeah, and, and I have to admit, the demo's really fun, like, I, I downloaded it just to check it out, and I was surprised, like, it's, I'm very close to buying this game, like, it, uh, it seems very good, and the demo has a lot of replay value, actually, like, yeah. they don't limit you, you can do single player, you can do multiplayer, granted, after a match, it boots you back to the, like, buy the game when it comes out screen, but then you just actually says buy the game now yeah oh yeah buy the game now and then you go to the e-shop and it's like just kidding but uh yeah and then you just start the demo again and you do it again and it has hours of replayability and the final game like i said is going to have other modes yeah, so. just like that i mean it's tetris i mean you know what you're getting into well, and it works it's tetris and like i was saying and everything but style like style wise it is straight up poyo poyo it's colorful to the point of like being fluorescent the the cast of characters are all straight out poyo poyo including a wonderful talking scientist bear I thought all the Tetris uh, ones were made up Risakuma. by essentially Puyo Puyo people. What? Aren't like the Tetris characters? There just... are Tetris characters. Well, they're not actually yeah. Tetris characters. Well, I'm, Puyo, I'm, Puyo, well, Puyo. well, yeah. Well, they made them or, up for. Well, yeah, the yeah. Game. By me, it's all Puyo Puyo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and and just be clear, Scientist Bear is the best thing in that game outside of the gameplay. He is great. His voice is kind of weird, but the concept of him is top notch. But uh, yeah, the music's very cheery and Puyo Puyo. Even the Tetris music is like Puyo Puyo fied, and it's like a little more like upbeat. And I think what this really points out is Tetris, more than any other game, is like a chameleon in the gaming world. Like, it can take on any shape. It can morph into any sort of game and still feel like Tetris. Like, you have, like, the techie approach it takes on, like, smartphones. You have it being Nintendo-fied in Tetris DS. You have Miis and stuff kind of invaded in, like, the Hudson Tetris games for WiiWare. It all still felt like Tetris, which means... In Puyo Puyo Tetris, it, to your point that you're saying, I like Tetris, it is still Tetris. It feels just like Tetris. Even if the whole game looks different, it's still Tetris. Yeah. It's one of the very few games that can do that. So, so yeah, I, I don't know if I'm 100% sold on it because it is 30 bucks on the eShop or 40 for a physical release. And you can get probably comparable indie games for like 15 or 20 But I'm definitely extremely interested in it now. So the demo did its job. If you guys haven't played the demo, those listening, I highly recommend it. And I guess I get plenty of chances to play it here. That's true. I'm probably gonna buy it anyway. We'll see. But yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. It, it's 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 pretty fun. And and I I don't know if you noticed this in the direct, but Tetris Puyo Puyo Tetris also embodies this really noticeable trend that popped up across the third party games in the direct, and that's that a lot of them are ports, like a lot, a lot, like a lot of them are ports, and you've got. That's not necessarily bad, but if you just, like, look through your list, like, you've got the Nintendo Switch edition of Minecraft coming on May 11th with the same Mario pack that the Wii U version has, and that's great. Like, it's going to be huge. And portable Minecraft that's console quality opposed to pocket edition, that's going to be huge. And then a couple weeks later, you've got uh, the Sega 5 Complete on May 23rd, which is basically the game from before, but with seven new characters that were pre that were not in the original retail release. And then over summer, you see an enhanced version of Fate Stella from Exceed, which is basically a Dynasty Warriors game, and it comes with 35 previously DLC-only costumes and a new one exclusive to Switch. And then also in the summer, you have THQ Nordic releasing a Switch version of Grasshopper Manufacturer's uh, Sinmora EX, which is a side-scrolling like, shump shooter. 
and that has new additions in the form of local and co-op modes multiplayer and then you got namco in the summer releasing namco museum which is literally just a bunch of old namco games in a new package that also happens to have like stop and start gameplay because you know it's portable now so you'd be able to pause in mid-game and a challenge mode and then you've got rayman legends definitive edition later in the year which is rayman but with new tournament support and a solo mode for the previously multiplayer only kung fu games and then out of nowhere you got payday 2 for the switch which is a four-year-old hmm. game that yeah that starbreeze is like hey what if we put it on switch with a bunch of dlc baked in and call it new and outside of the direct even you have nicholas confirming that cave story plus is getting a physical release on switch even though it's been on like every nintendo system known to man in the last five years so the point is there's a lot of very familiar content coming to the switch with a couple minor enhancements and to be fair a lot of people probably haven't played these games. In my case, every single game I just mentioned, with the exception of maybe Namco Museum's included games, I have never played. They are all new experiences to me. But if you're trying to get people to come to your system and convert people to buy a Switch, I don't know how well you can sell it if you're like, look at all these old games that have very slight improvements. Like, it, you know, it doesn't... It feels... It kind of feels like publishers were caught off guard by the Switch's early success both in terms of like the word of mouth and actual sales like it seems now they're just scrambling to get games on switch in the short term kind of reminds me of the early wii days where you're just slapping motion on existing games and be like look look it's it's wii friendly it's great worked and... really well for other brother new what really oh yeah well. it worked really well for some games and i guarantee some of the games i just rattled off are gonna be great minecraft makes total sense for example but it's just like it would explain why we're getting a four-year-old game like payday 2 or the umpteenth version of namco museum it's just like well they're Let's get them on there. Like, Payday makes total sense because they literally have a game filling a niche, that th- filling a genre that doesn't exist on Switch. There are no shooters on Switch right now at all. And Payday 2 can easily do that, and it's quick to port, and it's co-op-oriented, which the Switch is all about. So every game that they're coming out with does in some way or form relate to the core mission of the Switch, which is like this little local yeah, multiplayer need to get machine. Left for Dead on there. Yeah, Left 4 Dead would be great on there, but it's just—it's just funny but that, that game like, is also exactly. It's just funny that they're all old games. It's—it again, yeah, nothing. You get Portal Two on there, but old game. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just kind of funny if you look at the lineup, you're like, wow, look at all this previously already out content. Cool, and I mean, it's not like it's going to stop anytime sh- soon. I'm sure the fact that there's this early Switch success is why you see people like Square Enix's CEO say things like, and this is a direct quote. We're thinking about what feasible existing tiles we want to successfully port onto the Switch. Like, they're not even hiding it. They're not like, oh, well, we're, we're going to see what makes sense. Like, what game would be good for Switch? He's literally like, what game will make us money on Switch? Let's get it on Switch. Mm, it's look just, at our library. Oh. Yeah, they're literally just like, oh, what about Dragon no, Quest? They already did Dragon Quest Heroes. Actually, Tomb Raider would no, be pretty not good. Hitman. Hitman would be pretty good. I don't know. And that's the funny thing with this whole situation is I'm seeing here like, oh, they're all ports, but then you rattle off three. I'm like, those would all be great on Switch. Like, it's like Let's give them that DSX game great. we gave them on the Wii U. Oh, again. human, human, yeah. Human revolution. But it, it's just funny that like we have all this happening and you can't fault them for this at all. Like, I don't fault any publisher for doing this. You have a new system with a lot of hungry owners and many of them haven't played your past releases. I am a prime example of that. So why not release it? It's just on principle that seems a little... Like, oh, wow, it's a lot of things that have existed before now, but now they're over here. But but to be fair, some publishers do have new stuff coming. Like THQ Nordic, I called them out because uh, Sinmore EX is a port. 
But to their credit, they also have a Switch first multi-platform release coming out in the form of an RPG called Bow Chasers Night War that's sometime this summer. Sega, yes, they're pouring over Puyo Puyo Tetris, but they also have Sonic Mania day and date on Switch alongside the other version, so there's that. Ubisoft has Rayman, yeah, but they also are bringing over Monopoly, and it looks like a brand new Monopoly, and I'm going to be quite honest, I'm kind of excited for Monopoly. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that, too. Yeah, so before, now I'm sure someone out there is like, oh, come on, it's Monopoly, so what? But I would like to counter that argument with, yes, it's Monopoly, that's what. Like, it is, Monopoly yeah. is great. Yeah, Monopoly is really fun. Whenever we get to, the few times we ever get to play it as a group, it's it's really fun all around, and frustrating, but fun. But, I mean, the cleanup always kind of sucks. Someone really, I don't know, it's one of the few board games that you don't really want to set up when you have to deal with the money. I remember we actually had a version with the credit cards that one of our roommates had. And we played that one a few more times just because we didn't have to deal it's with easier. the money part. Yeah. But I feel like the video game versions always kind of balance that out. Like we played the Super Nintendo one a lot back in the day and even in college sometimes because we didn't have to deal with any yeah. of that. And because it was Super Nintendo, the animations were pretty quick and there wasn't much fluff. So I'm hoping this one either lets you skip animations or they don't last so long that it kind of defeats the whole purpose. Well, they're saying it's got all sorts game. of custom rules and all sorts of modes and whatnot, so I'm sure it's going to be a fast mode. But but the thing I find interesting about Monopoly for Switch is how perfectly it fits the concept of the Switch. The Switch itself, in tablet mode, laying down on a table, is basically a mini board game. The Joy-Cons can do HD Rumble, simulate the dice. They're going to do that in this game. It's going to really feel like you're rolling dice, kind of like 1-2-Switch. It's literally a board game that also happens to be a Just Dance machine. It also happens to be a 1-2-Switch machine and a Jackbox party pack machine monopoly slots in with all these local multiplayer experiences so well that someone could just be like let's have a switch party and have totally different games over the course of the night it's just it's such a logical fit i'm surprised no one thought of it before now i'm surprised it wasn't like oh board games digital board games like don't stop monopoly make a new trivial pursuit make a weird clue that somehow is fun as a digital game i don't know but like make a board game collection do like a hasbro game night like they had on uh, the wii back in the day like this system is perfect for it the game's gonna support six people online six people offline like it's made for these sort of situations and ideally you'd be able to do a mix and match and online and off so you could play with a couple people locally and a couple people online but who knows if they'll do that but yeah like i can't believe how logical of a fit this is and how few people care about it even though it is literally the perfect addition to everything the switch is about with local multiplayer yes yes so that that's my monopoly rant um but i guess the point i was trying to make on a broader level about like the lineup you know it's like there's a lot of ports there's a lot of new stuff there is a lot of play and a lot of people probably have played those games and there's a lot of first part a lot of third part etc etc the point i'm trying to make is there's actually a lot coming out in the coming months for both switch and 3ds if you want first party you got stuff every three weeks every few weeks i mean if you want third party you've got stuff every few weeks if you only insist on entirely new stuff, it may be a bit more than every few weeks, but there's still games worth checking out. I mean, we didn't even talk about, for example, in May, uh, NBA Playgrounds, which is basically NBA Jam 2.0. That's coming out on Switch. Tumble Seed comes out on May 2nd. Uh, there, there is stuff in addition to even what we're just talking about. And all in all, I'd say that by sheer quantity, this was a pretty solid Nintendo Direct. In terms of quality, I think there's significantly more noteworthy games than not. But in terms of quantity, there is a ton to play. And that, arguably, is a win for any Switch or 3DS owner. Like, it's not, There's nothing mind-blowing, but there's enough quality stuff for you to play that you should have walked away from that Direct, I feel like, relatively happy with being a Switch or 3DS owner and having at least a couple games on your must-have list coming up between now and, say, end of summer. I, did, did you get that? Did, did you walk away from, this, from that Direct having at least a few games? You're like, oh, I'm for sure playing this, this, and this 
into summer and beyond. Like it just seems well rounded, I guess. Sort of. I mean, there's platoon, there's arms. I mean, no? not necessarily coming out of that direct because I mean, we well, already knew about. Yeah, because the games that I was most looking forward to I already knew were coming out, so it was right. more like, oh, okay. Ah, right, that's yeah. fair. I guess I guess I'm saying if you look back at it and you and you basically look at it and go, okay, here's Nintendo's telling me what's coming out in the next three months. Four. I mean, months, as an isolated thing, then yeah. Yeah, that's sense. what I mean. Because, yeah, like, some people, I saw some people online just like, oh, the Direct was kind of ho-hum, or there wasn't really anything for me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's, like, major first-party releases, some interesting third-party stuff, some interesting... Actually, that's all major first-party and third-party. But, yeah, it just seemed like it was pretty pretty well-rounded. Yeah. It's just kind of weird. We're just back in that... Um, cycle. That cycle of Nintendo Direct where we don't have this, like, oh, big Smash Bros. character reveal at the end, or, like, something that... Always makes you... Because E3 is coming up. Yeah, because I remember, like, those character reviews at the Infinite Smash Bros. when we were getting them consistently. Yeah. Like, they almost made... Something that was all I looked forward to. Everything else, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, okay, that's kind of cool. But then, once they reveal the character, that's the part that always stuck with me at the end. I almost forgot what the rest of the Direct was about. Well, that's true. The problem... The the thing about Directs, and I I feel like there's no... There's no one more thing. Yeah, not one more thing. The thing with the Directs in their current form is there isn't... There's excitement, but there isn't hype. Does that make sense? They have things that's like, oh, I'm excited to play that. But there aren't things that, like, build raw hype. For lack of a better term. Because, like, with, with Smash Bros., for example, you forgot everything else because you were so hyped about that one thing, right? You may have been, okay, maybe not excitement. They are missing, they had anticipation, but not hype. How about that? Like, you're looking forward to Splatoon, maybe. Or you're looking forward to ARMS, or Mario Kart 8, or Monopoly, or whatever it may be. But you're not going to go walk away from a direct and be like, I am so hyped for Monopoly. Like, you might walk away from an old direct and be like, I am so hyped that they included Bayonetta in Smash Bros. Or something like that, you know? Hmm. Like, it's, it's a different... I mean, maybe someone out there is hyped for Monopoly. But I feel like there's, like, looking forward to versus pure unfiltered hype. And the directs don't have that currently. Yeah. But, but you know, that's there's only so much Nintendo can do. But while we're on this downward on, on this downward trend, let's let's talk other not as good news. Um, <laughs> as every Nintendo fan has probably heard by now, separate from the direct, the day after the direct, Nintendo announced that the NES Classic Edition has been discontinued. <laughs> April shipments will be the last shipments worldwide, and that sent the internet and Nintendo fans into quite the tizzy because Nintendo's basically turning down. We know it's been hard. We know it's been hard to find. So we're going to stop making it. We know it's been hard to find, so we're going to help you out by just stopping it. Well, I, mean, I don't have to look anymore. I don't know if it's true, but I mean, I read somewhere that they only make like a buck or a few cents from each no, NES or something right. like that. Dude, it's like a $10 Raspberry Pi inside a gray plastic box. There's no way that they only make 10 cents. On the no, Switch, not 10 cents, like, I know they make like a couple bucks. I don't on, know. On I, the I, Switch, they make about, surprisingly, only like um, $43 per unit. I know. I need to see confirmation on that because if that's true, that no, the NES Classic was a money maker. But the the thing was like, this has basically turned down free money. Like from the fan perspective, it was never readily available. I was like, demand's been there since day one, and yet Nintendo decided, you know what, we're done. Like I had the luck of getting one at launch, but a lot of people didn't, and because of this, there's this huge uptick in disappointment and in eBay prices for the Classic, uh, the system. Following the announcement of it being discontinued, tripled in cost on eBay. It went from an average of 143 in March, 143, to an average of 352 in April. So far. I mean, April's still going. But still, from 143 to 352. 
for what amounts to basically a Linux emulator inside a $60 plastic box. Like, that is nuts. And from a fan perspective, it does totally suck. I get it. Like like I said, I was lucky enough to get one at launch, but a lot of people never did. When I was in Japan, a lot of the electronic stores that I, you know, that I ducked into or whatever, they had signs in English that said Famicom Mini sold out. Like, huge red signs in a lot of the electronic stores. So... That, you know, it wasn't a U.S. only thing. Like, the, the the thing was popular worldwide. And likewise, I never wanted a second controller, but a lot of people never got a second controller because they're even harder to find than the system itself. I don't even think they sent out second batches of the second controller, and now that's discontinued too. So from a fan perspective, this whole thing's pretty crappy. Now, from a business perspective, I hate to say it, but Nintendo's onto something here. They have essentially gone the route of the Disney Vault. And let me explain. Um, for those who don't know, I know you, Andrew, are very familiar with the Disney Vault as a diehard Disney guy. But for those who don't know, the Disney Vault is this trick by Disney where they put out a movie suddenly for re-release on video, DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, very briefly. And then they decide to put it back in the vault a few weeks or a month later. And then three or four years down the line, they go, oh, hey, look what's re-emerging from the vault. And you have to make the mad rush to get it again. And then they put it back in the vault and then you just rinse and repeat the same process over and over. And it makes it so any future release is suddenly a must-have if you missed it because the first you time. Don't know, yeah. Because yeah. of that whole thing they do, it, I had to get the European version of Beauty and the Beast in Blu-ray 3D. What it does. Yeah. It, like The fact that you have to go to those lengths is kind of nuts. It's yeah, the same because, because I don't know if they'll ever release it again. And honestly, they probably won't because 3D isn't really much of a thing anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, as soon as, like, they announce the Lion King, as soon as they announce the Latin, as soon as they announce the other ones, like, mm-hmm. oh, day one, just buy it. Right, yeah, it instills a mindset among fans that when a release first came that comes out, you need to buy it ASAP or you're going to miss out completely. Like, it, if you're a more conservative company like Nintendo, like, think of it from their perspective. What would you rather have if you're Nintendo? I mean, Disney has endless money, so it's fine. But if you're a conservative company like Nintendo, what would you rather do? Make a ton of NES classics, produce, you know, like, produce a ton of them, but then have this fear in the back of your mind that there may be extras that don't sell and those are money lost? Or would you rather do a somewhat limited run where you could at least guarantee 100% profit from every single unit you create and sell? Like there will not be any leftover. There will not be any money gone to waste. Every single one is money. That, If you look at it that way, and you look at what Nintendo's been doing these last few years, you can kind of see that they're going why they're going the Disney Vault route. Like... Look at how Nintendo's treated any sort of amiibo in the past few years. There were the shortages, or like the special editions of games that sold out instantly and had very limited runs, like the Master Edition of Zelda, or the limited edition 3DS systems where, you know, oh, on Black Friday, get the Mario Print 3 new 3DS like you have, and it's only available on Black Friday. Oh, surprise, we released a small batch in February, but it's gone, you better get it quick. Oh, it's back in April, but it's gonna be gone again. Like, they do these sort of small batch releases because they all instill this idea in us that if you want something from Nintendo that's different, special, unique, you better buy it immediately or you're not going to get it. And the NES Classic's basically going one step further with that. And here's my proof that Nintendo is Disney vaulting us. And yes, I just made up the verb Disney vaulting, and I'm pretty proud of it. But uh, there are two specific statements Nintendo made about the NES Classic and Famicom Mini, or Famicom Classic, that full-on suggest this is what they're doing. First, here in the U.S., it was NOA saying, and I quote, NRA territories will receive the last shipments of Nintendo Entertainment System NES Classic Edition systems for this year. Now, 
That didn't say forever. Now, yes. Now, here's the thing. Why would you specify this year? Obviously, they're not receiving the last shipments for last year, four months into this year. So, it's a weird thing to say unless it's not a permanent discontinuation. Unless they plan to bring it back in, say, 2018. And the thing is, no one in the media seemed to pick up on that. IGN was like, oh yeah, it's discontinued. And just left at that. Like, everything, like, all Polygon, all of them were just like, it's discontinued, period. They're done making it, period. No, it says for this year very clearly at the end of that sentence. That implies something. And if you could argue it's semantics. You could argue I'm overthinking it. But then I would like to point you to my Exhibit B, which is Nintendo's statement in Japan for the discontinuation of the Famicom over there. And their statement is much more direct. It says, and I quote, This product has ended production for now. When production is being resumed, we will tell you on our website. Boom, mic drop, argument made. Welcome to the Disney Vault era of Nintendo. Enjoy your stay. Like, there you go. Is it ideal? No. Is it sad for Nintendo to do as a way of guarantee making money on every single thing they ever sell? Absolutely. And we are going to see the NES Classic come back, or we're going to see a Super NES Classic, or we're going to see both, but they have Disney Vaulted us. It is officially happening. You don't say, it's done for now. We'll tell you when it comes back. If it's not coming back, it's coming back. So, for those who are panicking, you'll get it eventually. But it's not gone for good. And that's my thoughts on the NES Classic, so... I was pretty proud of that because when I saw the uh, for this year statement, I tweeted out pretty quickly from when I was in Japan. I tweeted out like, "Oh, they're Disney. It's Disney Vault. Like that means Disney Vault." And then the next day, the Famicom statement came out saying, "Ending for now. We'll let you know when it's back." And like, "Well, there you go." So yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It's not gone for good at all. Which means get ready for having to deal with the sort of hell of rushing to buy things from Nintendo for every single release. They ever do. That's not just a of their game. classic line or whatever. Not just classic line. No, it's yeah, gonna happen yeah. to Amiibo. It's gonna happen to special editions. Look at what they're doing with Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem uh, Echo special edition sold out pretty much instantly. Had a small second batch go up for pre-sale on or pre-order on Best Buy. Disappeared just as quickly. We'll probably see one again at launch. It'll disappear again. That's the one you dash. wanted to get. Were it you? is, and then I didn't because it wasn't there. Whenever I whenever it's available, I'm asleep. The problem is like Best Buy is being accommodating. Oh, we'll do it at night one day. I'm asleep. We'll do it during the day the next day. I'm in Japan at nighttime where I'm asleep. So, like, it just it hasn't worked out. But, uh, but yeah. Could have gotten it if you had told me. I know. Well, yeah, I didn't I didn't really realize they were going to do a second batch. But now I'm going to be on it like a hawk. If you see it, if you see it, pick it up for me. Um, I'll pay you back. But, yeah, speaking of making money, because this is a brilliant way to make money for Nintendo. I got the NES for a coworker, which ended up working out for them because right after this announcement, yeah. they like, well, you literally, I was able to get it for you right before they announced this. Right, which, right. But yeah, this yeah. is definitely Disney Vault or Nintendo Vault, as they're probably gonna. They won't call it the Vault. Those call. They're not gonna give it a brand. But the Nintendo they, Archives. The Nintendo uh, Archives. The Nintendo, Where's of the Lost Ark, giant empty warehouse. But but yeah, Nintendo likes making money. This is a way for Nintendo to make money. And uh, to transition into our final news topic, there is another way for Nintendo to make money, and that is the Switch, because woo, that thing is selling very very well. Is it? So via NPD data, is it? Yes, it's breaking records. Via NPD data, Nintendo was able to confirm that in the United States alone, the Switch has sold 906,000 units in March, just shy of a million. That makes it Nintendo of America's fastest-selling system ever. Faster than the Wii. Faster than the GBA. Faster than anything. It is their single-handedly fastest-selling system. And it was done during a non-holiday month, which is also crazy. For comparison, the Wii U, during the six six weeks it was out during its holiday season, so November, December, sold less than what the Switch sold in its and a half weeks out in a non-holiday month so yeah, yeah. that's kind of nuts and it's the, one of the most successful console launches in north america ever 
PS4 currently holds the crown, but Switch is creeping up there. And mm. what's crazy is all these numbers are true with the supply shortages. Imagine if they actually had enough. Well, these numbers would be even higher. And hmm. yeah, you're gonna say something. Sorry. Wait, so this is that where they also said that um, there are more copies of Zelda yes. Switch than actual consoles? I was about to say, if you thought Switch doing well was impressive, you should see what Zelda's doing. Because, yes, as you just mentioned, um, for those who haven't heard, the attach rate for Zelda Breath of the Wild is higher than 100%. There are more copies of Zelda out there than there are Switches. Specifically, Zelda managed to sell the Switch version 925,000 units on Switch alone, which, again, the Switch sold 906,000. So there's a bit of a discrepancy there of Well, we do a have a friend amount. that bought... I have a coworker that did the same. So there are people who bought it before they had the system, and what Nintendo's they wanted to make in on the Best Buy deal, yeah, or yeah. the discount, the dis- the Gamers Club twenty percent. Yeah. And what Nintendo's also attributing it to is uh, people buying a special edition to keep and a regular edition to play. So there are people that they think in a large enough number have doubled it. And this doesn't count digital software downloads. On. I don't believe it does, but they did not outright say one way or another. Hmm. And separate from that, of course, are folks who bought the game on Wii U, where it sold nearly half a million units on its own on there, 425,000 units, which means, in total, you're looking at Breath of the Wild moving 1.3 million copies in under a month, which is a new record for fastest Zelda game sales ever. Which is nuts. Like, of all games, this is the one that deserves it. Of all systems, this is the one that deserves it. Nintendo knocked everything out of the park, so it's really cool to see. I've said this before, but it's kind of like seeing your favorite sports team do well. Now I have to see them finish the relay race. Or the, yeah, the and, 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 and it kind of also confirms that the hype is actually real. Like, all the success has led an analyst, uh, various analysts at research firms to predict where we're at worldwide right now and where we're going to be by the end of the year. Superdata, for example... They extrapolated the U.S. numbers to worldwide based on whatever algorithm they have, and they think as of now, Switch has already sold 2.4 million units worldwide, which is substantial and 400,000 more than Nintendo said they were going to ship this month. So that's impressive. And their and that extrapolation goes further. They raised their 2017 sales prediction, this Super Data analyst, from 5 million Switches to 7.2 million Switches. So this thing is going to do more than half. If these numbers are true, this thing will do more than half of what the Wii U did in its entire life in one calendar year, in nine months. That's kind of insane. Um, you now, now, Zelda, uh, before I go too far, I believe there was something you wanted to mention about Zelda. You told me there was something you wanted to mention about Zelda, and you weren't telling me what it was, and since we're talking mm-hmm. Zelda, you did, a couple days ago. Have you decided, have you forgotten it? Should I keep going? I completely forgot. Oh! There, you wanted to revisit remember. Zelda. And we're at a good point to revisit Zelda, so why don't you yeah. revisit Zelda? Well, I guess what it was, um, after having beaten the game maybe six or seven times at this point. Wow. Like... I haven't even beaten it once. What's wrong with me? Anyway, continue. Well, I mean, I that's because, I don't know, I feel like I got lucky, but I have a, one of my, I have a, I have a good friend that he, we both like our games to be challenging, but we're both different types of gamers. And this is part of... This is something I didn't realize about Breath of the Wild that was the potential issue that I looked out on. Because since I'm not one to collect everything and power up, I'm that kind of person that just wants to see if I can beat the game sure. with as little powers as possible. I pretty much took the hardest route. Like, I only did one Divine Beast before I went for the final run, and it was tough, and I it was the challenge I wanted. But my other friend, who still loves... He likes having that kind of challenge, but he also wants to collect everything. Mm-hmm. So he went through the story. He collected everything he wanted to get, got his Master Sword, was all bulked up. So when he went to fight the final boss, 
it was like a cakewalk. It was it ended up being so anticlimactic for him that it almost kind of it soured the experience. It was oh. like like that's it. Because the way the final battle plays out is pretty significantly different if you go in early versus when you go in late. It actually and if I had done the story, like if I had done the all divine beast before I did the final boss, I probably would have been in the same boat. I would have been very disappointed, like really? That's it? That's I'm glad I didn't. Because now I'm like, oh, this was tough and it was fun, so now I'm just gonna go out. Like I got my Wind Waker costume, now I wanna beat it again. So I could see the cutscene with the Wind Waker costume. Oh, I'm gonna That's do some more Divine Beast and then I'm gonna beat it so I could see myself beat the cutscene with this, blah blah blah. <laughs> it, so it's it, become it's... that for me. But if I hadn't done that and I don't know, I guess when trying to say that I wish um the game scaled with the difficulty, because even going back, like even from the very beginning, um like the final boss row is really tough, except for one part that is I don't know, it feels like a common thing with a bunch of Nintendo games where you I don't know, it starts really hard and then some part is just so ridiculously easy that you're just kind of like, oh, I guess you're there for the spectacle, but it was just like, mm-hmm. really? I kind of mm-hmm. wish it was harder. I feel like, like thinking it... back to Twilight Princess, like that had an awesome like multi-stage fight with Ganon. Like, I don't know, just had a nice build-up. You fight him as like pig Ganon, then you fight him on horseback with like these ghosts, and then you fight him on sword fight. Like it just built up so well on this one felt way too abrupt like well that's it i guess your, your uh-huh. second point sounds like okay that's just in town game design but the, to your first point about your friend feeling is anticlimactic i guess that's the downside of such an open-ended game yeah in that like you I mean because I... the whole thing that Nintendo kept saying is that you make it as hard as you want it to be basically like you can go bulk up and then go do it yeah, but cannot, that... and i guess he just yeah, over bulked yeah because he didn't necessarily want to bulk up yeah. he was just like he just playing the way he normally right, plays right. his games so but that, then you look that's at just the peril of but that then, sort of game but then you look at but then you look at a game like Dark Souls, or like no matter how much you bulk up, the game kind of scales with your difficulty. And yeah, they should have implemented that. Like, I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, Nintendo still made a great game, and obviously this is like their first attempt at this, so it's still pretty impressive with what they were able to do. But I'm hoping that when it comes to future sequels, that they do kind of take into consideration that some people might be so strong that it does make the ending anticlimactic. Because, I mean, you are getting all these weapons and hearts and stamina and all this stuff, and then... I mean, you still want the final boss to be, like, a worthy foe, so to speak, but it turns out, like, they're no match for you whatsoever if right. you do everything correctly. Right. Like, the way I did it, it was just, like, an uphill battle. Like, literally everything killed me at all times forever because I didn't even have one of the Divine Beast stuff that helps you out a lot mm-hmm. without saying what it does. But, like, that kind of changes the game in of itself, one of the Divine Beast powers. Actually, two of them. If anything, those make it way too easy, and I didn't even get those before beating the final boss i but... suspect we will see yeah. with whatever breath of the wild 2 amounts to we will see that dynamic scaling thing because anuma has gone on yeah, record. i mean majora's math was significantly more difficult than yeah. ocarina and... And, and and anuma has gone on record that this open world approach is the new standard for zelda he said that in an interview recently yeah. so it's not that far-fetched to say okay how you improve the open world dynamic difficulty things like that and to your point about majora's mask if whatever ne- the next breath of the wild is is the majora's mask of breath of the wild same way Majora was talk uh, Ocarina, then yeah, difficulty is for sure gonna be in there. Yeah, because I mean, it has. To after be. I beat the game, I was definitely less inclined. Like at first, I was like, "Oh, this game is fun. If I'm gonna get all the shrines." But mm-hmm. after I beat the game, I was like, eh, "I, I kind of like took a lot of the wind out of my sails." So I ended up just wanting to even as Wind Waker, Link. Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted. Yeah. So I ended up just um getting a bunch of the fun deck. Like I went back and got the Master Sword because I beat the game without it and mm-hmm. all that stuff, and. Like, today, what did I do? Oh, I like I finally collected all of the Zelda memories because 
some stuff happens that implies that you'll get a different ending if you do. And after I did that, like now I feel like I did everything I want to do in Zelda. Now there's like no reason for me to play it. I guess I'll wait for the DLC. Or I guess maybe this hard mode difficulty. Maybe now that makes more sense. Yeah. That the DLC is including it. Maybe they realize that they were like, wait a minute. What if someone does beat the game like as the Hulk? As the Hulk. (laughs) Here you go. Uh, Well, we'll see. Just something that... It's, a, it's an interesting mind. point. Like, it's something that, you know, when... Because I hadn't considered that, like, now I know, like, Obus is going to run into that problem because he's... Collects everything. He pretty much, yeah, he's trying to do all 120 shrines, which I know, like, that other friend didn't do before he beat the final right. boss. Like, and, and, and it's definitely an interesting point that, like, it is new train for Nintendo, so they already have to learn these things. And the problem is gamers may expect something more than what Nintendo knows to deliver because they've never done this before. But gamers have played Dark Souls. They've played stuff like this. Yeah. Granted, it's funny because they've had harder final bosses in well, Zelda okay, games. Yeah, so, so that doesn't address your point about get the boss oh, no, easier, no, no, no. but it addresses the whole bulking up ahead of time thing. Oh, no, so, no. Yeah. Well, yeah, it does, because, yeah. I mean, how much you bulk up should be... You should it still should be dynamically... Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. That's interesting. Um, hmm. I mean, the, there is somewhat of a fix for it that they could have easily done. I mean, I guess you see when you get there, but I feel like the Divine Beast shouldn't have had the impact they do in the final battle. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you'll, I mean, you'll see what I mean. Maybe... Well done with not spoiling anything. Maybe it was something that we'll have to discuss later, but I mean, you'll, yeah. you'll, you know when you see, you're like, they do their thing and you're just, well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I can't say Random anything. Nintendo. <laughs> you do your thing and, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could just say it, but I know, no, I mean, the games are relatively not, new. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm sure, like I, don't, like, I wouldn't consider that a spoiler, but I know some people would. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because to tie this back into what we were talking about with sales in kind of a weird backwards way, what everything you're saying about Zelda, like, oh, it was one thing when we first saw it, but then it turned into something different. I feel like it's kind of how everyone's acting about the Switch sales right now. Like, bear with me on this analogy, but it makes sense. Because um, with the Switch, I was like, oh, my God, so successful. Nintendo, fastest selling system ever, da 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 But none of that matters, really, in the grand scheme of things. Like, in your case, with your friend, it's like, oh, he bulked up, he gets the final boss, and then it, it feels like a fact. It feels like, oh, all that was not wasted, but it wasn't full potential and if you look at switch sales in three to six months that's when the sales matter right now it's like great it's off to a strong start because of zelda outselling the system in six months is it gonna be an anticlimactic drop off in the same way that he his approach to file boss was like it's it's weird to say so just to kind of bring it full circle to our previous topic but yeah it's it'll be interesting to see how every sort of thing like this unfolds so it's interesting because yeah that's the downside of us giving impressions to games so early in their life is you know we're still playing them we're still somewhere in the middle of them so we don't necessarily know for example the boss gets easier or if you bulk up you basically have no challenge so it's something to consider but um in terms of switch sales one final thought on that we will have actual official numbers on how switch did worldwide coming up in our next episode because nintendo's gonna have their uh financial briefing on april 26th or their financials come out april 27th and briefing in tandem with that our episodes that weekend so while we know how it did here in the States up front, we will have to wait and see how it does worldwide, and we will analyze all that next episode. So check that out when it goes live. In the meantime, however, I have so much to tell you guys, and you, Angel, about Japan. Now, I haven't... So, for just to fill people in, I came back from Japan on Saturday sometime, and I haven't really told... I haven't really talked to Angel about it at all. Like, usually it's like, oh, hey, here's what my trip is like. So this is all new to him, too, so I'm curious how you react to this. But I could talk about how weird it is that the country never gives you a napkin. Never ask me if I actually want to listen to it, though. Well, you get to. You get to. It's my gift to you, besides the Pokemon things I bought you. But um, 
Yeah. Well, do you want to listen to it? I mean... You have no choice. So yeah, just say yes. I can't really go anywhere. All right. There we go. No, I was going to say, I could talk about how weird it is that we have a, that Japan's a country that never gives you a napkin at all. Or how it's total sensory overload everywhere you walk in Tokyo or Osaka because uh, every screen in the country makes noise. Like, imagine if you go to Times Square and all the screens in Times Square are playing their respective sounds at the same time. And it's just like, what is going on? But really, I think everyone listening, except you, Angel, who are being forced, everyone's listening because they're curious about the video game stuff in Japan. So I'm going to focus on that for the podcast. And uh, Angel, you were we talked about Top Show. You were there. So if you have any thoughts or your own take on what I'm saying, obviously chime in. Don't, I'm not trying to do a monologue here. Uh, but from my experience, it's interesting just how much more prevalent gaming is in Japan. Like, to be clear, it doesn't totally consume the country like some may lead you to believe. It's not like you go there, it's like... Everywhere you look, it's like Mario's face staring back at you. But there's certainly a stronger presence of video games there than anywhere else in the world. Definitely. It's definitely more like if, like, you know what? I feel like playing some arcade games today, so it's just like a walk. But not even just that. Just walking around. Like, you go oh, into yeah. a supermarket, and they have, like, a Mario display promoting an energy drink. You hop on the subway, and there's not only Zelda and Switch ads all over the stations, but they have Animal Crossing video bulletins inside the train. It's great. Or like you walk down any random street and kind of to your point, you stumble across a multi-story arcade. It's like, I'm going to play arcade games now. Or you can go to any capsule toy machine, which are everywhere in the cities, and you are practically guaranteed that there are Pokemon toys there. You could be on a bus in Kyoto, which is like the most traditional major Japanese city, and there will be multiple senior citizens sitting, scattered around the train, all playing Pokemon Go on tablets. That actually happened on a bus I was on. I'm not making that up. Three different guys. Or, you know, you could go to 7-Eleven, and there's a shelf full of eShop download cards. Like, every 7-Eleven has an eShop download card shelf. In fact, the uh, download card thing is actually really cool. And if you go to any major electronic retailer, they have download cards along with physical copies. I don't know why Nintendo doesn't do that by game here in the States. They have full-on snipper clip displays in retail, and all you do is get a card with the download. In fact, some electronic stores go one step further. There's one I was in that had a full-on Nintendo fan art corner. Where you could draw Nintendo fan art and post it on the wall. It was like a whole little section. It was bizarre, but it was, it was great. And then, you know, I'm not even mentioning things like the Capcom bar or the fact that there's Magikarp-shaped uh, uh, Taiyaki, which is like a custom-filled pancake, which is really good, by the way. Or that there's multiple Pokemon centers all over the country. It's, it's not every street corner you go that you see video game stuff or every place you turn, but there's just so much more of it on like a broad level than there is in America or in Europe or really anywhere else in the world. And that's kind of what makes it so unique and cool. So with that in mind, I figured I'd highlight a couple cool video gamey places I went. There's obviously Akihabara, which I'll talk about. There's Nintendo's home base of Kyoto. And perhaps one of the coolest bars I've ever been to in Osaka, which is Nintendo-themed. And I'll talk about that one too. Um, separately from all this, keep an eye on Ramtown.com. Sometime in the next week or two, I'm going to put up an extra with a full feature on the craziness that is the Pokemon Center store. I went to two different ones, took a bunch of photos of merchandise and the layouts and everything. It's just like, it's like a whole store, but it's just Pokemon. So yeah, I'll tweet out a link. To, we'll tweet out a link to that. Keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks. But let's start with uh, Akihabara, which is um, the one place in Japan that goes against everything I just said. Like I just went on this whole thing about, oh, it's not video games everywhere. It's just more of them. But in Japan, in, in Akihabara, it is video games everywhere. It is everywhere you turn. It's known as uh, um, like the electric part of town. I'm blanking on its actual nickname. Um, what does it? What is its nickname? Not Electric Town, but something like that. But it's known for uh, it's known for like, it's known for its electronic shops, and there are a lot of them. There's a ton of used game shops. Uh, to give you an example, like 
my friend and I are walking down the street. There's a Mario, plush Mario, in a chair and a door leading into a basement. And we're like, what? And there's like sandwich between like a camera shop and like a general electronics store. And we're like, what? So we follow the Mario into the creepy basement. And what do we find inside? A store dedicated entirely to used Super NES or well, Super Famicom games. That's all it was. Just Super Famicom. Nothing else. Just a whole store of it. And it's like, this is great. Like, you don't get that anywhere else in the world. And I th- the best, actually, the best store of that kind is called Super Potato. It's three floors divided by console generation, and they offer every classic you can imagine. Do you want the original uh, Mother for Famicom? Yeah, it's there. Do you want Game & Watches from, like, the 80s for, I don't know, 350 a pop? You can buy that's dollars. You can buy them for that price. It's the the it's just so much. They have everything. They had like the original Donkey Kong, like the original dual screen game to watch. They had every imaginable Famicom game. And the best part about all these places, Super Tam in particular, is even if you don't want to buy used games, they all have a pretty wide variety of Nintendo merchandise and collectibles and things. So no matter what, you're gonna end up spending money at one of these stores. It's bound to happen. And what's cool about Super Potato is that they actually have a fully functional virtual boy demo unit and now that i've tried it i really do understand why the system bombed like it is not it is not a good system like they were running a demo of wario land and the 3d effect is about as far as the very basic 3d you see in some 3ds side scrollers like it's two independent layers of flatness one in front of the other a foreground and a background and you're just kind of like well all right, I guess this has depth. But e- even ignoring that, you can easily see why the Virtual Boy didn't do well if you try it for like two minutes. Essentially, you're sticking your head inside what feels like a giant Game Boy. The graphics are about the same, except they're two-tone in red and black. The 3D doesn't really pop. The controller is admittedly, uh, admittedly rather comfortable, but again, your face is stuck inside a giant red plastic case, which is admittedly not rather comfortable. So I wouldn't say it's bad. It just... Is totally superfluous and unnecessary because it still feels like you're playing a Game Boy with all said and done. The only difference is your face is in a giant hunk of plastic with no real effect on gameplay whatsoever. I'm thrilled I got to try one finally. It's great that it was there, but I am shocked Nintendo actually thought that thing would do well. Like it is so. Have you ever you have you ever tried Virtual Boy? I think we were trying it once as a little kid and make sense house. So and pointless. Yeah. Yeah, but but besides the Virtual Boy, the other cool thing about Akihabara and really all of the arcades in general is they're everywhere. In Akihabara, there's, huge, there's a huge multi-story Sega one. Um, there's equally big ones all over the rest of Japan, and they all seem to have these arcade-exclusive Nintendo releases that are really cool. One Actually, one cool arcade run by Sega is called Joypolis. Not Joyopolis, Joypolis. They forgot the second O. And it's, um, it's in Osaka. And it includes not just games, but also, like, virtual rides. So, basically, space is limited in these cities. They build vertical. Like, the key tip for anyone going to Japan is always look up. Because you only see one floor when you're looking ahead of you. But if you look up, you'll see, oh, there's seven floors of restaurants here. Or, oh, there's a super potato on floors four, five, six of this building, which I wouldn't have known if I didn't look up. So, always look up. But because space is limited, they can't really do giant theme parks in the city, so instead they do virtual theme parks. So what Joypolis or Joypolis does is they have both arcade games and these virtual rides where they will put you... To give an example, we did uh, virtual water rafting. And they will put you in a raft that's on hydraulics, and the raft will move into what feels like a Disneyland ride, but then you get to the next room and it just stops because the ride amounts to hydraulics in front of a screen. So we're in front of like a, a curved screen, kind of IMAX style, but way lower resolution... 
and we were right water rafting and you know like it was moving the, the thing had hydroxymate feel like you're on water and then because this is japan it can't just be normal rafting so what happens you come across a crystal skull presumably of indiana jones fame who knows uh and you're gonna take the crystal skull with a little claw that comes out of your raft because of course it does and then out of nowhere a armored vehicle shows up with its own claw and it takes it and naturally what you do you latch onto the back of the vehicle and try and get your crystal skull back so it starts dragging you around every which way and the raft is starting to get all rocky and shaky and then again because it's japan and why not the armored car is also a jet so it suddenly ignites its back engine and now you're flying in a virtual raft over the rapids zigzagging through trees because again it's japan and why not and then for the same reason uh they decide you know what you're gonna actually stop the guy so you use your claw they're gonna use grab the skull and next thing you know you are attacking the car and the flying car is now in a spiral in a death spiral and of course that means you are in a death spiral in your virtual raft so you're now spiraling through the air on a virtual raft and then the truck car whatever you want to call it gets stuck around a rock with the uh, using kind of using the um grapple that you have like that rope like, it starts wrapping itself around a rock because it's spinning out of control, so you, naturally, are now in a virtual raft wrapping around a rock. And then, because I guess they don't value death the same way we do, you're, uh, the guy explodes. The car just explodes. The guy dies. There's actual death on this ride. And then you get your crystal skull, and it's over. But it's like, in America, a rafting ride would just be, hey, I'm on a raft, look at me go, oh, here comes a big waterfall, woo! But in Japan, you're flying through the air with a guy that has a crystal skull, and then he crashes and dies. So that, that's the difference between American rides and Japanese rides. But back to arcades themselves, um, even the straight-up arcade games are impressive. Or actually, the arcades themselves are even impressive. I mean, you probably... I remember you saying this when you went, Angel, but it's so cool how they're divided by game type on each floor. Like, mm-hmm. you go in on the ground floor, and it's, oh, UFO, like, claw catchers. Uh, almost every arcade, that's always the ground floor. Then you work your way up, and you have the fighting game floor, or the game with different weird peripherals, or that sort of thing. The music ones. Yeah, or the music ones, or the metal games, or the weird controller games, like I was saying. And the, the Nintendo tiles I experienced across these arcades were all in... They were all over the map. For example, my friend and I found this strange Pokemon machine called Pokemon Go Away, in which you basically... It's a huge HD screen, and you're basically finding two Pokemon at once. In reading up after about it after the fact, it turns out it's a fairly involved game. There's all sorts of strategies. It integrates Mega Evolutions and Z-Moves. It's up to date with the latest Sun and Moon Pokemon. But when it's your second day in Japan and you know zero Japanese, what it becomes is how do I best hammer the attack button to battle this Pokemon, followed by how hard do I flick this Pokeball joystick to capture that Pokemon. And even better, when you capture the Pokemon, it then prints out a nice little card with a sticker on it of the Pokemon you caught and its specific stats, and they can use that card as an NFC chip for the next go-round in the game and have that Pokemon be the one you use in battles against others. So that was kind of cool. But but the games I did better on were the ones with less of a language barrier. So Mario Kart is perhaps the best example. They've released a number of Mario Kart uh, arcade games here in the U.S., but in Japan there's been like six or five or some crazy number like that. And I have to play two that kind of bookend the, the series, so to speak. I played the very early Mario Kart Arcade GP2, which looks like a GameCube game. has a ton of references to Mario Sunshine. I think it came out around 2008 because it cribs the uh, Mario, the DDR Mario artwork of Bowser doing his little, you know, his little handstand move. They have that on the arcade cabinet, so I think that's around the era it came out. Um, but it's kind of interesting to play that and then play the new one, which is Mario Kart Arcade GP Deluxe, which is built on top of Mario Kart 8's engine. 
and you know right down to things like staring like the drivers staring at each other as they pass each other like it's straight up mario kart 8 and the juxtaposition of the two is really interesting because it kind of shows just how comfortable namco bandai got with turning mario kart into an arcade game over the years like the original was super uh, or gp2 i should say was super simple drifting was automatic the course design was simpler uh meanwhile gp deluxe you have to tap the brake to trigger your drift um the courses are way more elaborate and interesting the few constants throughout both of them are that your picture's used you take a photo of yourself you put a mario hat on and it like superimposes you in the game and the item mechanics are totally different than normal mario kart in that you don't get random items of the entire set you get three specific ones that they predetermine when the race starts and those are the only three you rotate between during the course of the race the idea being if you're playing for five minutes you don't want to learn every single item and what it does you can live with just three and get the hang of those by lap two or whatever so it kind of makes sense but my my biggest takeaway with cart or anything else is more people really need to play this thing like especially because some of the courses are really creative one that stuck with me from uh gp deluxe was a course where you're, it's a Namco course, and at one point you warp into like a vector world. Like everything's vector graphics. There's like sprites of all all these old Namco games flying around. Like it looked really cool, and I feel like that sort of creativity is not experienced by enough people because these arcade games, even in Japan, you know, they they weren't in every arcade. In America, they're in, in a fewer Dave and Buster's than they are in Japan arcade, Japanese arcades. So it just feels like a compilation should come out or something. Like I'd love for Nintendo to stick all these arcade games on the eShop like on the switch or something or you know if they don't want to fully port them they could retrofit the track designs to become mario kart 8 dlc or something like it's just there's like dozens dozens at least 30 tracks across these games that so few people have gotten to play and i really feel like it'd be cool to put those out there for more people like they were really fun and really different um the other mario franchise with noble arcade presence is mario party and since you can't easily replicate mario party in an arcade these games, which were made by Capcom, uh, instead go in a totally different direction. One of them, which has a name that translates to Mario Party Mysterious Challenge World, is literally gambling for kids. It's straight up gambling for kids. You put money in, you place bets on how you want characters to perform in up to three simultaneous mini-games, and you watch a roulette wheel spin in the middle of the, of the uh, arcade machine to determine which character wins. Or if you land on Bowser, it's game over. So it's kind of sensory overload in that the mini games are all running at once. You have a big touch screen in front of you that shows like three or four panels of the current mini games and the other mini games, and all of them are running in real time. All of them are live. You can switch between them and see which is the most interesting, but it's all real time. And whatever character you pick is specific to that mini game. So I can bet on Yoshi in one, Mario in another, Peach in a third, and say Luigi in a fourth. And then I have to juggle between them and see what's doing best in the roulette wheel which character is being chosen which isn't and how does that affect their performance in these like mini games that kind of run on autopilot basically and to really emphasize that this is gambling besides the roulette wheel is the fact that the game really wants you to place bets at one point i swear it said the word bet like eight times it had like eight bet prompts on the screen at one time and this is a game for kids like it's just like i can see how you just naturally evolve into pachinko from here like it just seems like the next logical step but it was just so weird to see. And like the roulette wheel itself is actually really cool in that it's like all digital projections on the wheel. So they can change what the wheel is spinning between really easily. And there's like this big piece in the middle that comes up for like special event stuff where you can be like, oh, Luigi's the featured character. And he'll like rise up above the others and it's a digital projection on top of that. It's, it's really fancy, honestly, but it's also gambling for kids, which is bizarre. 
and even then, everything I just described somehow pales in comparison to the other Mario Party game that I tried, which is like a Mario Party catcher of sorts. It's like, really, it's like every type of ticket game that you can imagine in an arcade rolled into a single machine. There's a crane game element where you need to grab Yoshi eggs from a moving conveyor belt. Then those eggs drop into one of those coin pushers. You know those arcade games where like you have a bunch of coins or tokens and you drop one in and it has to fall from the moving platform to the to the stationary one and hopefully when it falls it pushes coins into a hole at the bottom that come out and give you prizes or tickets or more coins or whatever? Yes. Yes. That. It's it's a crane game that then drops a Yoshi egg into one of those full of coins and then that falls out. And while all that is happening, there's a middle segment of the machine that is spinning with a track that the Yoshi eggs are coming down to the conveyor belt. Each crane, it's like a 16-person thing or like an 8-person thing, and each crane has a different neon-lit Mario hat on top of it that's flashing and stuff. And there are two separate screens being displayed to each individual player, one of which is just random footage, and the other is mini-games that you're playing while all this other stuff is going on. It is completely nuts, and it is something that like really embodies the craziness of Japanese arcades more than anything else. Also, it's kind of gambling for kids because you do it based on dice rolls. So you put in coins to get dice rolls. Those dice rolls will get you further in the board game, which is displayed on a lot of screens, and how you do it in the board game determines what happens with the crane, what happens with the egg, and yada yada. It's also rather complicated. But yeah, that's like... I knew about Mario Kart. I did not know about Mario Party. I had no idea Mario Party was secretly indoctrination of gambling for kids. But that was nuts. It was... I, I, I'm not even properly describing how insane it is. Go look up videos of this, or we'll link to... We'll link to, like information on both these games on the blog post for this episode but it's just like it is nuts i i have no better way to describe. did you see any mario parties when you were there mario party i thought i just saw the pictures but we couldn't find the actual machine oh uh, yeah it was like in the basement so i randomly came across it's called capcom planet capcom i literally just stumbled across it because that's the great thing about japan is you just stumble across arcades and it was just in the basement like tucked in a corner the two of them next to each other so it was it was quite an experience now on the total opposite end of the spectrum there's kyoto and Kyoto is noteworthy because it's home to Nintendo's global headquarters, and it's also a much quieter, more traditional Japanese state. Now, you, Angel, correct me if I'm wrong, you're only in Tokyo for your trip, right? Yeah. So you didn't get to go to Nintendo or anything like that? No. So I did, and let me tell you, it is sort of an experience. So Nintendo's headquarters is two different buildings in Kyoto, about a block apart. They have a new one, about three years old. They have an old one from the 50s. One houses their hardware team, one houses their software team. Fun fact, all their hardware people one wear one color of uniform, and all their software people wear another color, and they pretty stylish jackets, but that's beside the point. So I went to Nintendo, and there's nothing there. They, you can't go in the lobby, there's no shop, there's no museum. You walk up, you take some pictures from the outside, you get yelled at by a gatekeeper who tells you no photos, which makes zero sense because you're on a public street, but okay. And then you leave. And that's it. It's, it's the most... Like, I'm very happy I went. I'm glad I can say I've been to Nintendo's headquarters. They have an awesome flag. That's their Japanese logo, like the one they used to print on shirts sometimes. But there's really nothing else to do there, to be honest. It's just a building. Now, you know somewhere inside those walls is Mario Odyssey. Or, well, actually, that one's in Tokyo, so not a good example. But somewhere inside those walls is the next Zelda prototype or the Switch 2 or whatever. And that's kind of cool. And there's also always the chance that Miyamoto will walk out or something. But there's not a whole lot to do at the building itself, which seems like a very big missed opportunity because I was not the only tourist there. My friend and I were there. Another group was there. A third group was leaving when we got there. I mean, we're not talking gangbusters. So there's enough people that could have easily had a shop or a museum or something. So that that was a bit odd. 
Um, down the way, about two miles from there, is also the original card factory for Nintendo from before they moved into their 1950s building. This is one that literally, they, when they started, that's where they printed the cards. And the building is at least from the 20s, possibly earlier. It must be earlier because Nintendo's from, you know, was found in 1889. But that one's even more of a non-event because you go and all that's there is a plaque that says Nintendo Playing Card Company. That's it. You can't go in the building. The building's not used for anything. It's just locked up. Inside is apparently some displays of cards. It's like a museum waiting to happen. But again, you can't go in. There's no museum. There's no shop. It just seems like kind of a weird missed opportunity. And I, again, am very happy that I went to both of those and just was like, ah, this is Nintendo. This is their historic first building, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just weirdly anticlimactic. Just like, yep, that, that's a building. Like even Apple, when you go to Apple, they at least have a gift shop. But... I don't know. I'm so glad I went. It's just kind of funny. But uh, I will say, in hopes of making it more of an interesting experience, I we got lunch across the street from Nintendo's building at a local like little noodle house place. And everyone in there was Nintendo employees. They're all wearing the uniforms. Like, oh, who's going to walk in? Who's going to walk in? No one walked in. But the food was quite good. So there you go. Also, that was a great example of a place where uh, the language barrier is really an issue because they're not used to foreigners because they're like a little local noodle house. So it's quite a challenge to order when you have no idea what you're ordering. But it, it, it worked out. But the, the perhaps most interesting thing in Kyoto is actually the uh, Fushimi Inari Shrine, which is on Mount Inari, and you may know it, Nintendo fans, as the inspiration for Star Fox. It is those endless gates, the Tori gates, where they just, those orange gates that weave and wind and whatnot. And it's been featured in Nintendo's videos for Star Fox Zero. They're talking about how Miyamoto was inspired by it. It is really cool without the video game connection. Like, there's 10,000 of those gates that you can walk through. It goes all the way up and over the mountain. We decided to walk through all the gates thinking it wasn't 10,000 and thinking it didn't go all the way up and over the mountain. And then two hours later, we finished this insane hike. And we're like, well, I guess uh, I guess we just went up and over a mountain. But the, the other thing that's actually noteworthy about it is we've all heard the story about how the gates are what inspired Mimo to do Star Fox because he envisioned flying through them and that led to the gates you fly through on Corneria and whatnot on the very first level. What he doesn't talk about as much, but is kind of like undermining his creativity here, is... Every shrine has an animal spirit of sorts connected to it. The one at Fushimi Inari is, guess what? A fox. So, what actually happens, Miyamoto didn't go, oh, imagine if you're flying through this, and what if we made animals? He went, oh, hey, it'd be cool if I through this. Oh, look, there's a statue of a fox. Okay, Star Fox, done. Like, it's not quite as exciting of a tale when you realize you literally took the animal straight off the same place that I got the idea for flying through it, but... Nonetheless, but what I actually thought was really interesting about uh, Inari, more the mountain than the than the shrine, is along the way up the mountain there are a lot of little shrines, and there are a lot of things that are very reminiscent of Breath of the Wild. And Nintendo has gone on record; the developers have gone on record that Breath of the Wild did inspire, or sorry, Kyoto did inspire Kyoto did inspire Breath of the Wild. But they were talking about like the city layout and the size. They did not mention, for example, that as you walk up Mount Inari, there is a vertical shrine that looks identical to that first shot of uh, Kip. Ki- wow, I totally botched up. This is my jet lag kicking in. How do you say Kakariko? Kakariko. Thank you, Kakariko Village. Um, yeah, there's a vertical shrine as you, you walk. Mean that place you've been to. That in place, game? I, that place I love in game. Uh, but you know that shot from the. Uh, Tokyo Game Show trailer of that village it's just like it's like stacked up on like it's like layers of a mountain and each one has like one or two things on it kind of I mean that's what the village looks like but they have a really good shot in the trailer 
Uh-huh. Yeah, the first thing I thought of when I saw this vertical shrine as I was going up the mountain, one, they have like 13 shrines along the path. One of them, identical layout, sort of. Like identical mountainside layout of like stacking as in Breath of the Wild, as in that village. So I thought that, me and my friend both made that connection instantly. So that was kind of cool. And even as you walk around, you notice little things like, oh, hey, there are mushrooms growing everywhere. Like on trees and along rocks and everything, just like in Breath of the Wild. Or you get up the mountain and they have what they call a nice view spot. And when you go to the nice view spot, it feels an awful lot like when you're standing on the uh, cliff about to paraglide off. Like any any vista view you have in Breath of the Wild. In fact, the view you have from that spot is of Nintendo's building, however many miles away, and all of Kyoto. And it's just like, I was like, wow, this is like Breath of the Wild. Like there's so much on just that mountain that clearly led to Breath of the Wild, some of Breath of the Wild's design decisions. So it's not just Star Fox that came out of Mount Inari. It's also a lot of Breath of the Wild, and that's kind of cool. It is in Nintendo's backyard. It's about a 15-minute walk from Nintendo's building, maybe half an hour. But, yeah, I, I was just kind of surprised that there was more Nintendo inspiration there than just Star Fox. And I wouldn't be surprised if other games got little pieces from it as well that I just haven't made the connection for. But in a way, that was almost more interesting than Nintendo's headquarters or the old playing card factory in that, like, those are buildings you go to and like, yep, that's Nintendo. But to walk through an area and be like, oh, wow, here's this that led to this in Breath of the Wild. Here's that that led to that in Star Fox. Like, it's really cool to kind of walk in the footsteps of these things that led to games we, that I really like and that everyone really enjoys and that sort of thing. So, so that was spot number two, Kyoto. The final one I want to bring up is one that kind of is in the middle. If Kyoto is the peaceful, game, uh, the peaceful place and, and Tokyo is the crazy one, then I'd say Osaka is the middle ground. Uh, more specifically, from a gaming perspective, a bar in Osaka called Dendo is the middle ground. Now, we found this by pure luck, but it's actually the best embodiment of how gaming culture exists in Japan, I feel like. And that is, is a bar that seats about 10 people. It's in the second floor of a random commercial building. It's nearly impossible to find. And when you get in, what you get is a bar that has, like I said, about 10 seats, four or five game systems lining the bar, and a full library, not a full library, but a huge library of Famicom cartridges, Super Famicom cartridges, Wii games, Wii U games, PS4, Sega Genesis, um, Sega Dreamcast, Virtual Boy. Just they have everything. And you just sit there, you order drinks, they have like a full service bar, and you have an entire library of old Japanese games that you can just sit and play endlessly. The Virtual Boy you can actually play, it's on the back shelf. And like the whole bar is decorated with stuff. There's a lacquer hanging from the ceiling. There, but it's done like in a classy way. It's not. It doesn't look cheesy or cheap or anything. But there's like a little lacquer hanging from the ceiling. There's amiibo decorating the back shelf above the bottles. But it's just really cool that you can just sit there and be like, oh, so this is what Wrecking Crew is like. Or, oh, hey, here's Kirby's Adventure in Japanese. Or here's Yoshi's Cookie. Or like Gyromite. Dead Rob with Gyromite that you could play. And it's just there. And what's great is you get to experience all these old games in a way that's like not kind of shoved down your throat, not kind of like, oh, this is a Nintendo history thing. You're just hanging out, playing these classic games in a place. Like, in America, that would not exist. If you go to, like, one of those 80s bars, like the barcades, their whole premise is like, look oh, at us, we're doing video games. It did for a little while, but then it got closed down. Oh, yeah, in the, Vegas. Right? Yeah, in third coin. But that was all modern games. Uh, that place, no, it had, a, it had old oh, it? arcade stuff. It was more, definitely more, like, Western-influenced stuff. Yeah. But it was still really cool because you had, I mean, you had the arcade and the old console that you could play if you want to, but there was the modern stuff that right. was really cool, but it obviously held, like, a ton more people. It, this almost sounds like 
the humble like beginnings whole, of what the, yeah. what it turned into this. But it's great. But it obviously didn't thrive in the U.S. But what's, what's great about it is like it really shows how video games are just more like, yeah, they're part of the culture of Japan. Like in America, they're obviously a big part of our culture, but they're still sort of like, oh, I'm going to go play video games at a bar now. So I'm going to either like a barcade or Dave and & Buster's. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go play video games at a bar now. And everyone look at me. I'm playing video games at a bar. Like they theme it. And this yeah. one was themed, but it just felt more like, oh, yeah, I'm just here and there's some games. Like I don't know how very – it's a weird way to describe it, I know. But it's – it felt more laid back, I guess. And what was really cool is not only were the games there, but we're sitting there and we're chatting with, we ended up chatting with the bartender and with a couple people around us using Google Translate. Like we were literally like passing phones back and forth. Turns out the dude next to us, sitting next to me, level designer for Resident Evil 7 at Capcom. He's worked on everything from Lost Planet to Dead Rising to Resident Evil 7. And so we just start talking video games with this guy in this bar, in this video game bar. And it was like, it was the last night we were there and it was like the perfect, it really felt like the perfect embodiment of everything that is gaming in japan it was it's just part of the culture in a way that isn't here and it's really cool and if you want the crazy you got the arcades if you want the more like inspirational i guess you got you could walk through the the history of nintendo over in kyoto but if you just want to like sit back and just hang out with people that like games and make games and have a few drinks and try out obscure famicom games that never came stateside that's the place to do it at dendo it's just like it's it cool to see the whole spectrum like that so it's a really cool trip. Hopefully, you guys found the stories kind of interesting or whatever. But uh, yeah, that in a nutshell is why I want to share about Japan. But I will have a Pokemon Center article up on the site in the next week or two, so keep an eye out for that. Um, now, of course, you did totally different game stuff when you went. Like you went to the Capcom bar. Oh man, the right? Capcom bar. Yeah. So when I went, I went to the Capcom bar. Mm-hmm. They didn't play any of the special effects for me. What? We went and ordered drinks, and they just gave us the drinks. Oh, I wonder why. I don't like, know. Like, they were, every single thing we ordered had, like, crazy fan for, like, any, like, when Elvis ordered his Street Fighter drinks, they would either, they would just do that move that accompanied it, like, so he got a Shoryuken mixed drink, so they did the Hadouken on him, or yeah. stuff like that, or they literally put on the speakers, the Monster Hunter theme when you cook food, and then everybody had to do the cheer or whatever. Yeah, like, I, 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 it was weird. It was, like, it's very anticlimactic. Like, I much preferred Dendo over Capcom. Oh, wow. That sounds like a different place. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Was your, Yours was on, like, the ground floor, like, inside a... Like, you go into the a restaurant... Sunrise Hotel like, or something? And it's, like, behind the restaurant or behind the, like... There's, like, a second door. Like, you go in and then you go in again. Yeah. Yeah, so it was the same place. Weird. But, like, stuff like that's really cool in Japan as well. It's, like, the gaming culture seeps into everything. So they have specially themed cafes and stuff. Just, unfortunately, in my case, Capcom Bar didn't Yeah, I guess we wanted a good time. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so that that's kind of a couple takeaways from Japan and what it was like. Um, if you guys listening ever get a chance to go to Japan, go to Japan. Because even outside the video game stuff, it's just a really fascinating place with some really delicious food. And they play jingles on everything. Like, everything has music. The trains at each station, yeah, custom jingles. Yeah, I think it's different enough in the U.S. that it really does feel like you're visiting a completely different place. I mean, well, what's funny is I mean, having... as you're there longer, it starts to feel more familiar. And you start to see, oh, the differences are so minor. Even though they're also very major. Yeah. But and, then you you're miss, say, and then you leave. Yeah. But no, like the jingle thing, like I, I I should just say this. Not only do the train stations play individual songs, not only do the in each screen everywhere play individual songs. I was walking through like a shopping complex. The trash collector bin guy, like the guy pushing the little trash cart that they're pouring all the garbage cans into, that trash cart played music. The trash cart played music. Everything plays music. Also, there's vending machines everywhere and you're never thirsty because literally there's like five on each block. It's great. And that's Japan. Now, going to and from Japan, I had the Switch on the plane, and that meant 
playing Switch games, and that meant Snake Pass, which is why it's episode, and and well, and Zelda, which is why this episode is Snake on a Plane. So you're further than me in Snake Pass because, as we established, I didn't play as much on a plane as I thought I would. So I don't know if you want to take the lead on Snake Pass impressions, but it is a fun little game. It is its biggest. Um, I don't even want to call it a hurdle. I guess its biggest hook, I should say, is the controls because it's it's definitely a platformer, but it's not a traditional platform where you have to jump from platform to platform you slither and pass through things like a snake it yeah yes. I don't know, it, it, it's, it's really fun um it, it's definitely again that you it has a learning curve like you if you just try to go in and try to rush through it or try to just go straight to the collectibles you're not gonna have a great time in fact you'll probably give up on it just because you really have to take your time and learn the controls you have it's almost like i don't know it's kind of like driving a car because you have an accelerate button which moves you forward, but you don't accelerate that fast unless you slither. So you have to move back and forth, left to right, on with the analog stick. Mm-hmm. And holding A raises your head up so you can go reach higher grounds. But you still have to coil around things so that you can reach higher grounds. And make sure you're also holding the grip button. Because if you don't hold the grip button, you're going to be accelerating too much. And you're never going to coil around anything. You're just going to spiral out of control and fall off of things. The grip button is something you don't realize is so crucial at first. Because the game doesn't... It's sort of like, hey, you can grip things, just so you know. Yeah. But no, no, no. Like, you need to grip things. It took me a while to realize that. Yeah, like, the f- it is a nightmare if you don't grip things. Yeah, the first level is actually really well designed because there's no places where you can really die if you just play yeah. the game normally. But they give you plenty of things to practice on. And the first level also has plenty of... Well, every level has challenge coins. On top of the three gems you have to collect in every level there are also like 20 little blue orbs that Mm -hmm. they're like the coins in mario like you'll collect them as you're going through the level normally so unless you yes and no well i mean i feel like they do a very good job it's very well i mean i mean sorry not the coin the orbs the orbs are the orbs are scattered throughout the level that you're just going to run into them and you pretty much always see them like you're always within eyesight eyesight the coins though (laughs) oh at least from my experience like I i feel like with me not tender robbers. I feel like with me, there's a it, the the game really encourages you to explore. Like the levels are pretty linear, but they'll put a orb like under a bridge you went over, and you have to like go, oh, let me look under this bridge and see what's there. And oh, there's an orb or there's a gold coin. Like it's definitely a collectathon in the sense of like they want you to look at every nook and cranny, which uh-huh. is not a bad thing. No, yeah. I it's mean, I mean, that's thing. what it, I mean. That's what I felt like the coins were doing. Like yeah. the coins, they tried to put them in like these really hard to reach places. They're, they're... For the most part, the orbs set you on a path. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's why. Like, I mean. Usually you'll spot orbs and like off the beaten path, but you oh I feel like the orbs are always within eyesight, so that if you start going through them, you'll go to another path and you'll end up finding some other orbs that you wouldn't. Oh yeah, yeah, the orbs always lead to more orbs. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, like that's why the orbs are just there. Like you probably won't have too much trouble trying to find all of them, but the coins sometimes they're really easy to get to, but then trying to get back is what's hard because you have to sometimes you just have to like slither along a path on these poles you have to just like coil yourself around them and you get to the coin but the coin is over a bottomless pit so mm-hmm. getting to the coin is easy but then getting making your way back is what's hard that's why it's really you're encouraged to practice yeah what, what's slithering in, around what's interesting is it's really like what or it sets itself apart from normal platformers is it's more of a physics puzzler than it is an actual platform like the platforming you're doing is like solving little physics puzzles like yeah. how do i leverage the momentum of his slither and his body of noodle his name's noodle of noodle slither and body movement to best get this gold coin without dying yeah. like where do i grip correctly so i can get around this one obstacle to do whatever like it, it's it's more puzzler than it is platform. Yeah. Even though it's kind of built as more of a platform it, 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 than a puzzle. It's a puzzle platform. Yeah, I mean, that's but, a but thing. like way more right. on the puzzle side, I feel like. Because yeah, you never really jump. 
<laughs> no, yeah, you don't. I mean, you could fall off of things and yeah. try to get some distance, but yeah, for the most part, you're literally just once you get past learning the controls, then yeah, it is just learning how to use those controls to get to the end. It's no, no, it's really cool. It's very unique. That's definitely the, unique. the the I guess the, the best thing about it. Just that I've never played a game like this, so it was actually really fun figuring out a brand new control scheme because every game. For the most part, you kind of have your run button, you have your jump button. Yeah. Sometimes it's A, sometimes it's B, but that's as big of a difference as you get. But with Snake Pass, it was like starting completely from scratch because you've never played a game like this. And to be honest, from what from my experience, at least with how I thought about it, it makes more sense because the controls do take some getting used to since it is something totally new, like you're saying, like there is no run button, there is nothing you're used to. Think of Noodle as a vehicle, not as a playable character yeah so it's so like because, car. yeah it's like no yeah but i mean like even right down to you have to always hold r to make him move forward it's like hitting the gas like it's not just the how you maneuver him that feels like a car it's literally like you have a pedal on him and you have to press it so everything you do to your point yeah everything you do you have to kind of envision okay this is a train more than a car I'm taking Except you're train. not swerving when you're driving yeah you're not swerving <laughs> so that's like a yeah but it's just, but yeah. like, you can't think of it like, I'm controlling Mario. You gotta think of it like, I'm controlling this weird RC it's car. It's funny, because, like, the controls, the more you play with them, the more perfect they feel. And they're like, wow, this is, like, yeah. pretty much how you would want to control a, a snake. There's just a hump at the start yeah. you have to get over. Um, they do offer simplified controllers, which I wouldn't recommend. Just because I feel part of what makes this game great is the, the learning curve and using mm-hmm. these controls. Because they end up working really well. But, I mean, outside of that, I mean, there isn't really much to say about the game. Because, like, it's just bigger and longer I, I levels will... with like tougher puzzles like you're yeah one minute you're coiling over gaps and you're coiling over like spikes and then more treacherous terrain like and sometimes you have moving platforms or you have spinning platforms it, it gets i don't know they they add on the difficulty pretty gradually so you get enough time to explore and to really get comfortable with it but and i will give sumo digital credit yeah. like we're talking about the controls before and they do a good job of introducing new elements like they have learned that approach of like oh just slowly gradually add a new element on top of a new element like the first few levels are like one thing and then they introduce oh but you can do this now and oh but there's this sort of thing where you have to climb this height now when you're still doing one or two it's a very gradual easy curve yeah sometimes a little too gradual i feel like yeah. this game is um it's definitely slow. definitely more on the mellow side mm-hmm. like i wouldn't so i wouldn't really i wouldn't necessarily call it boring but it's just very... It's zen. It's very slow, yeah. It's very zen. It's a game you want to play when you just like want to relax and just spend a few minutes just playing it. You want to... Like, I can't really play for more than maybe 30 minutes. So I'll probably do like a handful yeah. of levels before I feel like, all right, I think I've had enough. I think I need something that um, is a little more high impact. That That's partly why I didn't play as much on the plane as I was originally thinking, which is why I was like, oh, you take the lead on the, on the impressions because... Uh, yeah, I was playing in like 30-minute bursts. So yeah, I'd come back to it a few times on a flight. But then in Japan, I barely touched it because I wasn't even by my Switch. But meanwhile, you can play Zelda for like three, four hours straight. But Snake Pass is definitely more of a... Even though it's a console game, it feels more like a portable game in that regard. Like, it's definitely good in small bites. Yeah, like, it's it's really fun, but it's definitely... Yeah, relaxing is just the best yeah, word. The, the, the one zen, thing that yeah. goes against the zen relaxed feel, that camera, man. That camera can be somewhat finicky at times. Like, there, there are parts where, like... The camera's so zoomed in on him, like, I, what am I doing? I, you can adjust the camera any time with the right stick. Don't get me wrong. It's easy oh, to yeah, handle, it's the camera does but the... it automatically does some weird, wonky yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's because the, the camera follows the, I guess, the Mar 64 approach where it pretends there's a physical camera there, so it can't actually face to the wall so that you can see yourself from any angle. So it'll just 
Yeah. If there's a water, it's gonna zoom in as close to to you noodle as possible because it can't move back for whatever reason. Yeah, and I, and I will say the, the game has some great personality. Like you can change noodle's facial expression with yeah, it's the like a little uh, big planet. Yeah, with the with the D pad equivalent, you can. Uh, I mean, the story is nothing to write home about. It's just it's there literally to explain to give a reason for why you're doing what you're doing. But like the 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 whole atmosphere of the game is really good. I love like the graphics look good. They actually put out a patch that fixed an HD rumble issue where the HD rumble was so loud with the game. Yeah, like, did it, out it, that it, would, like, did that a little. Yeah, but then they put out a patch, and now I did fix HD rumble. It cleaned up the graphics, and the graphics actually look better now. Like they looked fine before, but they look really good now. Yeah, I was like, gonna say that. Um, just playing it for a long time made me forget how the PS4 one looked because like this game just does look great. Mm-hmm. With and as I was saying before, it's only when you see side by side comparisons that you're like, "Wow, this one doesn't look as great." But yeah. when you're not looking at side by side comparisons, it looks very good. So yeah, and 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 it's just nice to see something this original on the Switch so early in its life. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's multi-platform release, but still, like Sumo put in work to get this thing running on Switch. Like they're not, they're even stuff they still need to add, like time trials. Because right now, you know, you're basically going through and you can collect as much as you want or as little as you want. And that kind of dictates how much replayability it has for you. If you decide you just want to breeze through it and you're done, you're done. If you want to get everything, you'll go back a few times to each level. But there is in the other versions a time trial mode where you try and get through as quick as you could slither as fast as you can, I guess. And uh, they are bringing that to Switch at some point. But, you know, for a company that poured this over in like a few days, a couple months before it came out and just polished it up, it is pretty impressive that it's so on par with the uh, higher end versions. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so yeah, I, I I would recommend it. I'd recommend. It. I mean, if you have twenty bucks to spend on the eShop, I'll definitely get Mister Shifty. But if you already have <laughs> that game, then definitely get a Snake Pass. And if you're curious about Mister Shifty, we will have impressions next episode. But I love we're running out of time this episode, love so we're gonna hold off on that one. But yeah, it, it I would recommend Sh- the thing about Snake Pass. <laughs> thing about Snake Pass. Sounded like you were about to say Mister Shifty. No, what? It sounded like you were about to say Mister Shifty. No, no, no. <laughs> I've not played Mister Shifty, which is partly why I want to wait. To discuss it till next episode, but uh, what I was gonna say about Snake Pass is there's nothing quite. I feel like there's nothing quite like it on Switch in the sense of not just terms like oh, with your snake, but like the atmosphere it creates and the and the mood and that kind of Zen vibe. Like most of the games on Switch, Zelda can be if you let it be, but really it's more actiony. Um, obviously, stuff like Puyo Puyo Tetris or Neo or Fast Racing Remix, Fast Remix, and all that are super intense. That's thing that's just kind of like chill like this. So if you're looking for a different experience on Switch, this is for sure up your alley yeah this is a game that like i don't just seeing traders for it like i knew i was gonna like it and i did so I'm yeah it delivers exactly yeah, what it, it, yeah it met my expectations yeah and it's sumo digital's first like coming out as an independent developer that's making their own unique ip so yeah. they 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 hit it on the they hit the nail on the head right off the bat so yeah, two for, for two for them on me since oh yeah i did love sound transformed yeah so yeah that, that's pretty much uh that's pretty much snake pass that's pretty much japan that's pretty much nintendo direct that's pretty much it for this episode um also anything else you wanted to add um no all right so yeah we'll be back to our usual every other sunday schedule with our next episode on april 30th and we're gonna be featuring big news from town's financial briefing and a financial report then we're gonna have impressions of mr shifty and possibly mario kart 8 deluxe depending on how much we get to play before we record it comes out that same weekend and of course all the latest news uh in the meantime if you need stuff to do while you wait for us to come back you can check out our extra interview with uh, Sean Triplock, voice of Revali, Teba, and Deku Tree over at Ramtown.com. I kind of plugged this halfway through the show, but in case you missed it, we had the opportunity to talk to him about what it takes to be a voice actor, what it was like to voice act for Nintendo, how strict they are, how much 
flexibility they give you, how he picked the voices for characters, all yeah, sorts Jason's of interesting really stuff. Jason's really great at figuring out interview questions. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm pretty proud of how that came out. And uh, also, not just thank you to you, and thank you to Sean, of course, but also thank you for, to Nintendo who helped facilitate this and make this whole thing possible. So that was really cool to get to have this entire experience work out as well as it did. Um, so yeah, check that out on the site if you haven't already. That was the thing we teased the last episode is going up in between. And also stay tuned for our upcoming look at Japan's Pokemon Centers in a separate article that will be going up. To make sure you don't miss the, that or stuff like this, uh, the Sean Chip Block interview should something like that happen in the future or our next episode, you can uh, follow us on Ram, on Twitter at Ram Nintendo. You can subscribe to us on your podcasting app of choice. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on Google Play Music. We are on everything. So just go follow, go subscribe, follow, etc. If you want to hear what we have to say between now and then, we're individually on Twitter. I am at JSR7. Wero, or Angel is at Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. And yeah, that pretty much does it. You can also friend us on Switch. Our friend codes are listed on Ram Nintendo Twitter or on the website. And uh, yeah, that pretty much does it. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. And until then, I'm going to try and like stop being jet-lagged, and we'll see how that goes. So good luck. Yeah. yeah.